It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from the saddest burlesque in Baltimore here in 2021. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nymar. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today is our senior Jewish correspondent, <laughs> Toby Herman. Toby, welcome back to Talk More Jews with us. Shalom. <laughs> I suppose you are a are yeah. Jewish and uh, and canine correspondent. There were no Jews in. I mean, unless yeah, I don't think there were any Jews in Turner and Hooch, Hooch, right? Hooch no, might have no. been might have been Sephardic. I'm not sure, but uh, 
<laughs> definitely not. Definitely not Ashkenazi. Do you guys hear what? that? We are Damn. losing listeners. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you saying our listeners are anti-Semites? I don't think so, Toby. I think they're very excited to sit. But that's actually something that I'm interested in. A perfect segue into one of the first topics I wanted to talk about. Okay. Right. Liberty Heights, 1999 film directed by Barry Levinson, the fourth of his tetralogy about tetralogy. Baltimore. Started with uh, Diner, uh, Tin Men, Avalon, and then this. Uh, I believe that was. Will 80. we get a fifth? Do you think we get a fifth? Uh, I think he will die first, but it's possible that Sam Levinson may make a fifth. He might take the torch. Uh, yeah. He might take over the Jew torch. Jew torch, huh? Um, but three Jews, you can make whatever jokes you want, but, uh, he made four films about you, about Jews in Baltimore, about his specific upbringing. And I guess what, one of the things I wanted to talk about is how weird it must be for non-Jews to have all of this Jewish content presented to you by, uh, major studios with big budgets and high production values uh, when you're not Jewish. I, you, you see what I'm saying? It's like we spent so much time, and a lot of these films, rightfully so, are about how Jews are marginalized. They take place in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, I think all but Diner are, in one way or another, about how Jews are, are marginalized. But um, they certainly don't seem marginalized in Hollywood. And I'm not trying to make some point about, you know, how Jews are prominent in Hollywood. It's obvious to anybody who, you know, is the history of Hollywood dating back to almost its inception, the way Jews have run, you know, studio after studio after studio. But that must be weird for other people in the country when Jews, when, when Jews are two to three percent of this country and yet Jewish stories have been so prominent in film history. I mean, I'm <clears throat> I. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, it did kind of occur to me as I was watching these four films um, how kind of crazy it is that he got to make these under the studio system. I mean, these are admittedly like relatively lower budget movies, although they are period films, so they do cost money. But I I would, I I don't know that it's as, I I just, I guess my, my, my overarching feeling is that the majority of films made out of Hollywood are about white people, you know, non, just Caucasian, non-Jewish people that I think that perhaps we're more attuned to the fact that these films exist than they are. I agree. I think a a truly Jewish film, like a film that's Jewish in its DNA is the exception. It's not, it's a little more rare than I think um, what you're saying, Kenny. We do get a fair amount of, a fair amount of Holocaust films, which I imagine, oh, sure, like mm-hmm. that, that, and that's that's sort of its own thing. But I, I, and again, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying that that because, quote unquote, that that a lot of prominent Jewish people run Hollywood, that there aren't a fair amount of films made about that subject matter. I just don't know that. I, I just wonder whether or not we're clocking it because of our heritage more I so think than probably. And the and maybe it's too early to get into this, but I think only two of these movies are completely Jewish films. Sure, the last two. Yes, I yeah, agree. With yeah, yes. you're right. T- Tin Men characters aren't even Jewish, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. So that's not. Yeah. Um, 
and if Diner, they are, they definitely are Jews, but it's not about that. They just well, it's a, yeah, yeah, they're Jews. The Jewish wedding at the end, but no, it's not that's about true. that. Oh, that's, that's true. true. And it does kind of contradict uh, the lessons of Avalon in in a weird way. Um, it's only yeah. it takes and and Liberty Heights for that matter. It's it's a it's a weird contradiction that all these movies take place in the same area. Yeah. And Liberty Heights is kind of explicitly about marginalization of Jews, whereas Diner, which takes place four four years, you know, prior, has yeah. almost no mention of that. Yet they're going to the same diner, which I love, which is fine. It, you know, the the experience doesn't have to be monolithic, and Jews like anyone else contain multitudes. Sometimes we just go to diners to talk about the cults. So, but I I do I do think that I do think that that compared to our uh, percentage of the population, Jews are over overrepresented in film and television. Um, I just think that does speak to the universality of human experience that, you know, a show like Seinfeld, which is not an overtly Jewish show, but it's obviously about a Jew, written by two Jewish people and playing on a lot of Jewish humor as is so much Mel Brooks and so much of our humor, the Reiners, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I think it does, does say something that, that the Jewish experience has a universality, but also has been I, I I really do believe given uh more of an opportunity to be seen in mainstream popular culture than most other uh minorities or ethnic I minorities. mean I do I do wonder whether or not and you sort of you mentioned it just just a second ago but the 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 prevalence or the success of Jewish comedians um to some degree or another I imagine has something to do with that as well, right? I mean, like when a Mel Brooks and a Carl Reiner and whoever else you want, Woody to kind of Allen, into that club, and- Woody Allen, sure. Uh, the 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 amount of sort of successful Jewish comedians, to some degree or another, I think probably fuels that too, right? Because when that humor breaks through, and other people feel like, I mean, as you just said, like Seinfeld's another example of that as well, right? I mean, it's. There, there is a cadence. There's a certain kind of, however you want to call it, uh, descriptors and, and in. Yes, even even sure. is it even a a non denominational show like Friends is centered sure. around Jewish yeah. characters. Mm-hmm. You I know? think part of this is write what you know and think about. <laughs> sure. I'm 100 serious. There's so do many too. Jewish writers, and I mean, yeah. one far end of the spectrum is like a Neil Simon who mm. just innately tells Jewish stories. Sure. And then there's someone like Barry Levinson who sure. worked his way to telling more Jewish stories. But I also think... Like, or a Mike Avalon, Nichols. Yes. And, you know, like yeah. Avalon, for example, I think it is absolutely a Jewish mm. film, but it's also just about the American immigrant experience. And so right. I would imagine that, you know, people from other ethnicities would watch that and still catch glimpses of their own family. Sure. That was the, that was the, um, the, my big fat Greek wedding thing, right? Mm-hmm. The argument about my big Greek, you know, big fat Greek <laughs> wedding thing was, this is everybody's family. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the point. I think, you know, I think, I think what happened though, over the, you know, up until my big fat Greek wedding, to some extent was they were, your typical white families, your typical waspy families, um, who you know certainly 
were put on a pedestal above everyone else and as, as the classic American family. And then Jews and Italians and Irish people uh, were also given some opportunity to have their stories told. Um, and beyond that, you know, black filmmakers who tell black stories. And that's kind of the end of it, right? Um, I think that's and- why a movie like Minari stands out right now outside of you know the whole pandemic and what have you but like that's a film also about the you know the asian immigrant experience in a way that you know in arkansas like it's 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 just a very sort of well, you know which is i i, I think minari is actually the most revolutionary of the films we have this year yeah. because it's <clears throat> as we feel you and i were texting about this this morning but it's well-worn ground to tell historical stories like Judas and the Black Messiah, even about historical figures who've been controversial. Malcolm X was 30 years ago. Like this is this is something that that filmmakers of color have been doing for years and years to, sure. to a level of acclaim. To tell a uniquely American immigrant story from a perspective that's not white has actually never broken through like this. Um, yeah. Whereas these stories about you, the childhoods of white filmmakers have been have been breaking through forever and ever and ever. They often make great movies. Like I think these four movies certainly, you know, to cut through the bullshit. I think these four movies looked at as a tetralogy are pretty incredible. Like I think it's an incredible, you know, uh, montage of a of a person's life and a culture's life and a and a snapshot of you know America at a certain point in time, a really important point in history. But what we what, what's weird, and I was looking, you know, at this is. We haven't seen a lot of this. I'm going to tell the story of my childhood from filmmakers around our ages. Um, and I was wondering, is that because the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s are not as evocative? Is that because the internet has made it so those don't feel so far away anymore? Um, or has it been that like those stories have been told to death by white people and people of color have been marginalized until this point? So um, still are. I'm not to say it's over, but. I think our uh, people of our generation are right above or right below. I think they have found a different way to tell the stories. Like the first thing that popped in my mind was Freaks and Geeks. Like that is of its moment. It is absolutely about the time that it was um, set. And I think a lot of that comes out of Judd Apatow's um, history, his personal history. And that was twenty—that was twenty years ago. So, what are you saying? You're talking about millennials making films. I'm talking about movies. No, I'm talking about movies making that are being made now. I'm talking well, about movies. If, if you if you were to make Avalon right now, you would be setting Avalon. In the mid '90s, which I if do you, think is, I mean, or maybe know. the mid '80s for Avalon, or in the mid '90s for um, Tin Man, it would be the the it would be like in '85 to a '95 period, um, where you would set those show those movies about your parents and grandparents. I think um, that the the '90s feel like you know. I don't know if you guys saw this. There was a documentary that uh, the actress who plays Punky Brewster put up on uh, on Hulu this weekend called Kid Ninety. Kid Ninety, yeah. Um, which which I quite liked. Um, I I feel as though the idea of sort of the adolescent '90s experience 
might not be distilled into, and this I think answers your question, Kenny, in terms of like whether or not television shows or various other types of media are the way that those boxes are going to get checked rather than making a film or, or a tetralogy, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, I, I think also, you know, we've, we all know about the death of the mid tier movie. Um, and these, all four of these films fall pretty squarely in that box of, of a sort of, you know, 20 to $40 million, what have you a little less Liberty Heights only had a budget of 11, but still like, I, I think that that movie just doesn't, exist outside of a Annapurna or an A24, and I don't know whether or not those places are interested in that type of movie. Jonah Jonah Hill tried, right? So Jonah Hill made mid-90s, and he he certainly tried to do this thing, and it, you know, it, it, I I don't think it was a successful movie, really, but I I see what he was trying to do, and I give him credit for 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 trying to do it. I think it comes down to a couple of things, you know? Uh, The boomers really bought into their own shit. In a way that's kind of hard, in a way that's kind of hard to believe. Like the that that they really thought that they were special, you know, angels, and every story from their lives was worth telling. Uh, Gen X, the Wonder Years like, effect, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, Forrest Gump effect, Forrest Gump, Wonder Years. I mean, we could talk about these <laughs> movies too. The movies we're talking about today, yeah. uh, Gen X yeah. basically decided it's all stupid and <laughs> fuck it. We're like this is the dumbest shit in the world. Uh, and now, and, and, and so there is that kind of lost, lost art of the, um, you know, the, the loosely told autobiographical story. Yeah. And my sense is that uh, Gen X is embarrassed to do it. Like, I, I do feel like, I'm not Gen X, the millennials, I, I feel like yeah. they'd want to because we're a sentimental yeah. generation. I, you know, considering myself to be kind of an old millennial, I guess, we're a sentimental generation. Um, nostalgic generation, but we're also kind of embarrassed by the idea of telling stories about ourselves. And that I think is a real thing right now. I think particularly, you know, not particularly among whites and particularly among Jews. Um, I think that there is like an, 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 a shame about writing that story. And by the way, not completely ridiculous to be shamed about that. But I would, I, I would argue that the generation after us has no shame <laughs> and they're on the but other side know, of this you don't know yet you know they're, well, i mean they're like if you look at out. shows like girls or generation or what have you there's no there's no shortage of of sort of teen shows that are willing to kind of embrace every sort of you know element of of the spectrum i i don't think that they're you know worried uh, that, about that that's different that's telling stories about their lives right now like that's that's that that, that is them finding that that's what i said you don't know yet Fair that's enough. them finding Fair that's enough. them finding their ways in real time which sure. every generation is going to sure. do every group of artists is going to do you're talking about but, looking back at, at as yeah i get that i get I'm, that yeah. i'm talking yes i, I every fair. group every group of people every person is going to say my life is a movie at some point you have to almost um it usually is the first thing you write uh and then once you've matured as an artist, like, I mean, Lena Dunham is going to do something else and it's going to be interesting. And I'm, you know, I wonder, oh, I, I, I wonder have no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know she's an EP on generation, but I wonder what it is when she's like, says, okay, this is my next kind of big thing. That's about me in a different way. I just think that that generation, the ge- the generation that invented selfies, they're going to look back at themselves do you know what I mean? Like and TikTok. They, well, but I mean, I yeah. just think they haven't had enough time to live enough to warrant looking back yet. I don't know. 
They didn't. They 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 took the selfies at the time. So like, Maybe. I I I'm not. And I don't mean to be to, to be contrarian. I just don't know. I I do think that there is, for instance, the like the the high school reunion effect, where uh, high school reunions don't mean what they used to because everyone's following each other on Facebook and Instagram. I know. I the 250 kids in my grade, I pretty much know what 220 are doing, how many kids they have, where they live, um, who they're married to, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I did not expect that to be the case when I was graduating high school. I thought I wouldn't see these people for the next 10 or 20 years and we'd get together and we'd reminisce. But I, we, I, we did that and I talked to half these people within the last five years. So I, I think that, I don't know. I don't know what it means, but I do think that it has affected this kind of period piece in, in my opinion, a negative way, because I would like to see what the period we're talking about, 1999, this turn of the millennium, pre and post 9-11, we should be fucking figuring out what that did to us. And we are not. Well, we're not doing it in in... I think we might be doing it subtextually to some degree or another. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that, I mean, I think you and I both agree that, you know, that uh, 25th Hour is one of the best 9-11 movies. It's not really about sure. 9-11. That was only a couple um, years later. Sure, sure. Um, so I do I do wonder whether or not there is some processing going on to some degree or another. I also think that um, in terms of, like, writing movies about yourself um, or or sort of trying to... I, I can't help but think of of Malcolm and Marie a little bit here, because not just because Sam Levinson is Barry's son, but also because that one of the big things that film was kind of dinged with was this idea of the sort of navel gazing component of him using this as an as a as an opportunity to be able to complain about critics and how they view his work and stuff like that. Like I think that people are now just sort of metatextually dealing with these things rather than sort of like overtly making a movie about their autobiographical, what have you, but, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, I'll I'll throw out one other thing that I think is, is, is real and, and bad. Um, (laughs) Barry Levinson grew up the son of working class immigrants um, or second generation immigrants uh, in a major American city right around World War II as the country was, you know, having all these massive economic and social changes. Um, most of the filmmakers from that period, mm-hmm. you know, we know most of their biographies came from a similar background, um, somewhat lower class dreamers, uh, you know, technicians. Um we know that if you want to be successful in Hollywood today, mm-hmm. uh, you could be a genius or you could be someone who can hang out and have your parents subsi- you know, subsidize your life for a while while you figure it out. Yeah. And I, I don't mean this as a judgment. I just mean that like people might be a little embarrassed to tell that story. I think Sam Levinson would be a little the embarrassed. The story? <laughs> to tell the real story of his life. Yes. Yeah. I think no, Sam yeah, Levinson... I think Sam Levinson, if he was to, you know, sit down and be like, all right, let's talk about how, like what really happened to me to get here yeah. and what my life was like. Even Jonah Hill, who God love him, like, you know, did the best he can. He, he, he wrote a, a quote unquote autobiographical story about a kid living with a single mother in a one room apartment. Uh, that's, that's not who Jonah Hill was. I, I know where Jonah Hill went to high school. Like, yeah. um, I, he, he, it's, 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 There's that's no not equivalent him. struggle in that story. For sure. 
There's well, there's isn't, but like I I def, I dare somebody. I dare I'd, I'd watch the hell out of Sofia Coppola. I'm saying I dare somebody <laughs> to tell the story of yeah. of, of what it actually feels like. Like yeah. you know, Sofia Coppola. That's interesting. Has never. There's no question that she that she hasn't had an easy road. It's hard being a female uh, filmmaker in Hollywood who fucking was in a movie when she was like 17 and a, a national laughing stock and eviscerated there's, for it. Yeah. There's certainly a story there that these people can tell. They're just too embarrassed to tell it, and that's why all the love in the world to fucking Lena Dunham, who had the guts to tell the real story. I agree with all of that. I think that, you know, it's interesting in, you know, when you, as you were talking about Levinson and, and his upbringing and, and I think why these films are so interesting, watching them all in sequence was really kind of fascinating as well. You know, mm-hmm. just really feeling the, the unity of them and the sort of the, the, the package of them, I thought was really fascinating, but it also, you know, Kenny, you mentioned this idea of of the times with which they grew up, right? I mean, I know the boomers obviously drink their own Kool-Aid, but but they also really were living in a pretty seismic time, you know, where seismic yeah. shifts were happening in this country, not to take anything away from that. Um, what I like is that this these films, for the most part, Liberty Heights might be the least elegant of, of the four, deal with those issues in ways that I think um, is relatively subtle all things considered like these movies don't feel like sledgehammers um they really do feel like sort of lived in character pieces which is again a testament to how special it is that they were made and kind of crazy that they were made i think it's interesting that he built the most volatile one that that was the last one you know and and i also think it's really interesting i would imagine you know he makes diner and he's nostalgic for his youth. So he writes about his youth. I don't know where Tin Man falls into all this, but then you go to Avalon and he's older and reflecting more on his familial experience. Mm -hmm. And then you get Liberty Heights, which is like the most electric as far as talking about religion and race and to a point that, that's not what he experienced. I mean, that's, that is probably based on aspects of reality, but that wasn't his life, you know, necessarily. Sure. So, I think it's, I, I, I just want to uh, step back for a quick second here, just because I think it's worth noting the, yeah. the sort of the Levinson arc, if you will, or where, sure. cause like Diner's his first film and it, and it feels like a first film, but it was also not the film he wanted to make first. The first movie he wanted to make was Toys, which is absolutely insane. <laughs> um, yeah. That that was the movie that he that he wanted to try to make first. I don't know who told him, and I should know this, but I don't know. Someone told him within the industry said, mm-hmm. this should not be your first film. You should make something small, something character piece, something that feels like you, like tell us your... So he makes Diner, which is the, the obvious kind of inflection point in terms of like where his life, where he felt like, you know his American graffiti, his whatever you want to call it, right? So um, it obviously does quite well and it opens a bunch of doors for him. It's really Good Morning Vietnam that really kind of like blows the doors open for him. And the success of that film allows him to make, you know, uh, Rain Man Rain and Bugsy Man. and Toys. And ultimately he gets to make Toys, um, and which, which 
is is the sorest of thumbs in his filmography. It's it's truly an insane movie um, that that it exists. One of the um, worst films ever made, but you know, I don't agree. I, I like know you toys. don't. I don't even understand it. I don't even understand the um, logic of it. But but, but all that being said, I just think it's it's looking at 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 Levinson's career over the course of these films and and just kind of trying to get a macro sense of of the choices he made because his career, for all intents and purposes, kind of falls off a cliff. I mean, it really sort of this is kind of the last movie of note that he makes really um, before he makes a string of movies that, that ultimately don't really exist. Um, well, but then he, then he kind of found his footing with these HBO movies that everyone yes, watches. Yes. A hundred, hundred percent. Sorry. I, that, that, and you're, you're absolutely correct. The, the, the Paterno um, and, uh, and the, the, made the off made off thing. Both of those are great. Um, and I'm actually legitimately curious to see what this Godfather making of thing that he's doing is going to turn yeah, out like, too. cause it, it could be great. Um, but what, what I think is interesting is I don't know that he, that Liberty Heights was, I guess the question I have is it feels like he makes these three films, right? He makes Diner, he makes Tin Men and Avalon. From all accounts, it sounds like Liberty Heights came out of, of all things, uh, a, it seemed like an anti-Semitic criticism of Sphere. There was a critic that was saying that Dustin Hoffman was was the wrong character or the wrong actor to play this role and in a sort of roundabout way made it sound as though it had something to do with the way he looks or his or whatever the case may be his jewish vibe that apparently sparked something in levinson that made him want to go and write liberty heights so liberty heights feels like sort of the epilogue or or perhaps the the fourth film that he never maybe really thought about making that's not to take anything away from liberty heights but i do think it's an interesting so it's more of a response song it feels that way to me yeah and again i i don't i I don't want to project i don't know any of this for a fact none of these are facts this is just my assessment of what i've read but it feels like um that that sort of hit a nerve for him that took him back to a time when perhaps he he you know, anti-Semitism was was much more prominent to him. The anti-Semitism doesn't. You don't feel anti-Semitism in these in in the first three films, really. I mean, I did. I didn't. I don't know if mm-hmm. you guys did. No, you don't. The, right. Uh, and, and even in the fourth film, it's restrained. Sure. You know, uh, I, I the I I bought it. I really did. Yeah. I really bought it in a way that, like, you know. Y- you kind of have to strain in a, in a movie like School Ties and say, is that really what it was like? <laughs> yeah. um, like, like, maybe that's what it was like, but that's so overt. And I don't right. know if I believe that. Like this subtle, creeping anti-Semitism throughout, the, throughout Liberty Heights, that's what it felt like. I, that's what I think it felt like, you know? I mean, we, your parents obviously grew up in, uh, in, in Canada, right, Phil? But Toby, your parents were, did they grow up in New Jersey? My father did. And my mom grew up in Massachusetts. So similar stuff, right? The, my dad, my parents grew up in New Jersey in South Orange and uh, in Springfield. West Orange. And there yeah. you go, the oranges. <laughs> and, and, and those, the, all those towns were very, you know, kind of ethnically diverse. And I do think mm-hmm. that everyone kind of had their own pockets. But when, you know, when they went to high school or when they went to, you know, town and, whatever they everyone mixed and and for the most part i mean there was certainly strife but for the most part it wasn't this overt you know crystal knock shit 
that I you're kind of led to believe in a movie like School Ties, which I like, um, which I'm sure existed here or there. But for the most part, I think it was this like, don't date our girls. Are you a Jew? You know, what are you doing at our parties? Stay to your side of Liberty Heights, that kind of shit. Um, and it uh, it, it rang very true. I, I I really liked Liberty Heights, like deeply, really. I really loved it, actually. It might have been my that, favorite. That's, that's interesting. Um, I, I, I want to unpack that in a second. I want to ask you guys um, if anti-Semitic, if you ever in your high school teen years kissed up against anti-Semitism, did it ever enter your life in any way? Did you ever ever yeah. have sort of an incident or anything that, because I did sort of, but I'm just curious as if whether you guys did. For me, not really. Nothing I can think of specifically. Um, you know, there maybe there's a bond. Nothing that affected me. And I actually think my experience was very similar to uh, both Barry Levinson's and Ben's in Liberty Heights, because, you know, he talks about how his entire world, like for Ben, the main character, his entire world was Jewish. And, you know, there was an Asian classmate that he assumed was Jewish because everything he knew was Jewish. And then slowly that began to unravel as he stepped further and further into the world. That was me. I wanted to get a Hanukkah gift for Mrs. Wong, my kindergarten teacher. And my mom was like, "Ah, I'm not so sure about that. You know, and I mean, (laughs) I went to a Jewish preschool and Hebrew school and our public schools in West Orange had days off for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur because there were so many Jewish teachers. So to me, that was normal. And then, you know, you inch outside of that and you go to college and there are people who've never met a Jew. And it's like, what? I don't understand. Um, So I don't know. I thought that was interesting. But as far as the anti-Semitism goes, I haven't really had first person experience, thankfully. I haven't either. I mean, I spent most of my life in in places where Jews were, if not the majority, they were a big enough minority that are big enough percentage that I never in any way felt marginalized or singled out. I mean, I, uh, my town was probably a lot like West Orange, Chappaqua. Uh, we were about 50%. Jews were about 50% of the white population there, which was about 90% of the town. Um, and then uh, my camp was mostly Jewish. And Penn is kind of, classically a jewish place you know Penn is i think I, all I, counselors went to Penn. that's where the jews go <laughs> i there there was there was a stat again that that i heard when i was there that 70 percent of the, the white population of Penn was jewish and i think it was 40 oh. overall so it's a very jewish school i'm in hollywood that's very jewish too so uh i you know didn't mean to kind of travel this Jewish road, but here I am. And no, Phil, I I don't think I have ever in any real meaningful way that Mm. didn't in any way that affected me experience any anti-Semitism. So I had an incident happen to me in junior high, which in in hindsight, I, 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 it is pretty, pretty alarming. And yet at the time I found myself very sort of nonchalant about it. Someone scratched a swastika into my locker. Um, oh, shit. In, uh, I'm sorry. In yeah, that's high. fucked up. 
Yeah, no, it is for sure. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that the reason that I wasn't particularly, I mean, obviously I was, I mean, it's upsetting and I certainly wasn't like okay with it, but I also felt in some way like, oh, we're past this. Like there's just some fucking idiot and there's just some guy and, you know, they, they, they painted my locker immediately. Uh, I never, never had an incident since then. Have no idea who that person was. Um, you know, it was, it was a, it was certainly a, uh, you know, a, a, shocking thing to to see on my locker but i didn't really give it much weight which is probably a good thing i have enough anxiety in my life and i'm sure i could have spun myself out back then about it if i chose to but i didn't uh and but but now looking back on it i think to myself you know i'm going to a junior high in 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 toronto which is a you know pretty prominently Jewish city for the most part. There's a fair, there's a large Jewish community there. I wasn't necessarily, I was, I w- the school was close to a very prominently Jewish area. So like it, 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 it's just surprising really like in Canada that there's this person that did this thing. It's just an odd thing to me, um, but it stayed with me. And I, and as I was watching this film, I couldn't help but think about it. Um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I just don't, I don't know about you guys. I can only speak for myself, obviously. I just, as much as I identify as a Jewish person culturally, I don't particularly do it. I certainly don't on a religious level. I'm not a religious person. Um, I'm proud of my heritage and I certainly would want, hopefully, my future kids to know about my grandparents and what they went through and all that sort of stuff. That being said, uh, I don't know. It just, it, it was it, it was a weird moment that that this film highlighted for me in a, in a weird way. So, and, and you know, it, I think Avalon's probably my favorite of the four. Um, the reason for that being, um, it reminds me so much of my grandparents. Um, you know, the, the 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 grandparents in the film look like my grandparents. Those family dinners felt like the Sunday dinners that I had with my grandparents. Um, that immigrant experience uh, is just something that was so kind of is so in my DNA from, from my childhood um, that that film resonates with me the most. It's also the saddest one of the four, like that one, the end of that film is, re- I mean, it's, it's a, it's a pretty brutal film. It's kind of amazing that that, I mean, that's a blank check movie. If you ask me, like that's him just cashing in yeah, all his chips. Yeah. He does. He has two blank checks. He has toys and he has Avalon, <laughs> but <laughs> like, yeah, so go ahead, Toby. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, you and I texted a little bit about this, but the yeah, thing, yeah. so Avalon was the one that I knew first. I mm-hmm. remember seeing it either in the theater or not long after. I sure. think there was literally a field trip with my temple, you know, to go see it. Um, <laughs> and um, I remember, you know, the line, you cut the turkey without me. Like that was yeah, 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 every yeah. Thanksgiving. Somebody said it at our, at our table, you know. Oh. Okay, we're and, gonna keep, we'll keep, it's all good. Okay. Um, and I always liked this movie. Yeah. Went 10, 15 years without seeing it, revisited it probably two years ago. My sister and I watched it again and I liked it. But when I sat down to rewatch it, yeah. In the context of these four films, it fucking killed me. And I think yeah. a big part of that is having lost my dad and feeling. Sure further from his family stories. Sure. Um, but it just really got me. And yeah. I, 
began to tell you this um, Mm -hmm. over text, but there were some super, super specific things in Avalon that were completely aligned with my family's experience. My great-grandmother, Ray, um, she arrived um, at, um, what's it called, Ellis Island on July 4th, uh, 1907. And (laughs) Avalon opens with Sam arriving on July 4th, 1914. And there are all these family stories about how um, the one of like a relative couldn't get them off the boat for two days because of the holiday. So they stayed on the boat and then they got off and it was my great grandmother's 10th birthday and she had strawberry ice cream. It was her first ice cream. So now on her birthday, we have ice cream, you know what I mean? So like (laughs) there are all of these things and another like super random thing when um, Aiden Quinn, um, Jules, right? Uh, yeah, Jules, when yeah. he gets injured, when he gets beat up, stabbed or um, something, yeah. And the grandparents buy a television. My mm-hmm. dad's family <clears throat> got a television when my dad and my uncle had the measles. His grandparents brought right bought them a television. You know what I mean? So like, there were just these little snippets mm-hmm. that felt so familiar to me that I absolutely loved it. But one of the things, and if this is veering too far away, tell mm-hmm. me. Um, but one of the things that I loved about this oeuvre, whatever you want to call it, what's the word, Kenny? Tetralogy. That. Um, <laughs> there were things that connected all of these movies, and some yes. of them were subtle, and some of them I thought were pretty overt. But mm-hmm. I started noticing when I was watching Tin Men, because it was the same diner waitress, Florence, Mm -hmm. and who I think was probably actually a diner waitress there. (laughs) And then Babel, Michael Tucker, was in both movies. And I was like, okay, so there's a little bit of a world that they're creating here. Mm -hmm. And then I was completely gobsmacked in the final moment of Liberty Heights when Ben, older Ben, is doing a voiceover. And he says, I had a relative who once said, if I knew things would no longer be, I would have tried to remember better. And that's a quote from Sam Krichinsky yeah. in Avalon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. I don't know, everything just, it felt whole. It felt like this, this world was created and I totally bought into it. But I do think it's really interesting when you separate them and look at each film on their own how different they are and I don't know if that reflects where Barry was in his life at the time or if it reflects just a different you know pie piece as far as his experiences growing up I don't know I th- I'm kind of fascinated by it uh, yeah I like it too they're there it's funny because it's also about Baltimore but it's like the different seasons of the wire in you know <laughs> in its own way right oh, each that's one fascinating. Yeah, each one, you know, they 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 are connected. I these these guys clearly are in each other's world. You know, I mean, you, you mentioned the waitress; they use the same diner. Liberty Heights and in Avalon, they live on literally the same street of row houses. There's no diner that. in Avalon, which I thought was weird because there's no diner in Avalon. Diner in the others, yeah. But the other three, they all go to the Fells Diner. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, don't we see the diner actually being lowered in Avalon? We actually see the diner. We see Elijah Wood looks at the back of the car oh, at one point, right. and you actually physically see them building. You see the diner being lowered. 
That's oh my gosh. Amazing. I didn't It's know incredible. That. Yeah. Side, um, side, real side, something real quick. The diner was literally, they found it in a diner graveyard in New Jersey and chucked it down <laughs> and put it exactly where they wanted it in Baltimore. That's awesome. New Jersey would have a diner graveyard. That seems I know. right. <laughs> uh, Sorry, diner, diner culture. I'm very nostalgic for. I think about <laughs> yes. all the real diners, right? Like yes, the, yes. it's not so much even about the, food it which it kind of is but it's about the setting it's, it's about culture. those roads yeah uh, all right but i think yes it reminds me a little bit of, of tin man and that's kind of where i mean uh the wire that's kind of where i feel like that's how tin man tin man falls into this in that it's not explicitly about the same culture but it is about the same group of people trying to accomplish the same ends in the sure. same city at the same time and you know the the one the other thing that that uh, this movie one through line throughout this movie is the obsession with Cadillacs, right? Mm-hmm. All these movies there, all these and movies that, are about cars. That um, <laughs> Cadillacs, yeah, American yeah. this American made supercar that was the you know the status symbol at the time that you had made yeah. it. Like the Cadillac for Danny DeVito's character Tin Man was more important than his home. Yeah. It was more important that he had a Cadillac than he had his home. Yeah. So uh, I I think that really I think these movies taken together honestly not so much diner but the other movies taken together are uh, an incredible kind of distillation of the immigrant experience. Um, diner is kind of the beginning of where it goes wrong, in my opinion, of where that next generation forgot where they came from and decided life was more important. Decided it was more important to you know quiz your future wife about the cults. What are you doing? <laughs> What are you doing? I Grow up. <laughs> I will say this. Um, the latter three uh, films are all very much about an immigrant or the son of an immigrant trying to make a living, trying to support a family and not necessarily successfully. And I think that's very accurate, especially like Avalon, like, you know, if you talk to people about what their grandparents did for a living, all of the things that you saw. Yeah, it's incredible. Were accurate. Wallpaper um, hanging, sold TVs, like yeah. that. Yeah. And that's good stuff to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, oh, aluminum that. siding. Like this is, that's, yeah. that is what, that that is what generations of families were built on. Those like. It's a little physical for the Jews though, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't agree with you. I mean, not that, not that group of Jews. I mean, my well, grandfather was an electrician. I mean, yeah. But yeah. yeah. I, I, I think what's you know, one of my there's a lot of wonderful moments in Avalon, but the moment when um, Michael is watching Sam put up the wallpaper uh, in the house, and he says, "You'll never need. You don't need to know how to do this. You should mm-hmm. never have to know how to do this." Um, well, there's. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so, but there, that's why I think Diner, Diner in its own way, uh, Diner to me is only brilliant in its, it, when taken with these other four films. Mm-hmm. On its own, I think it's complete boomer trash. Um, but when you take it as where we went wrong, where we stopped worrying about what was important, started worrying about ephemeral bullshit. Uh, then it's an interesting story about kind of the decline of American hard work and American culture and our, our dive into like things like going to strip clubs and treating women like trash and, um, you know, worrying more about sports than people. I mean, I, 
I said this to Phil, but I, I, I can't, I can't believe that they never showed Steve Gutenberg's wife's face in the movie. How do you have? I a loved movie? that. Uh, tell me, explain that. To me. <laughs> because it, it it illustrated how he felt. It didn't matter. She was she was a thing. She wasn't a, a character. She was kind of a means to an end as far as a life goes. I'm not saying if that's a good thing, but I it, thought it was deliberate and I appreciated it. Uh I appreciate that take. That's the only good take. <laughs> like that's the only I I I We're guess that's to fight Kenny. Uh no, I don't want to fight because you you have I a do. good take. Uh I love fighting, but I don't I don't think that anyone I don't think I've ever heard that from anyone else, right? I don't think anyone has ever taken it to task for that. But I never thought Diner was an indictment of these people. Now, having watched all four of these movies, and I still don't think Diner is an indictment of these people. I think when you have a fucking, you know, fade to black and white freeze frame on five guys together at a wedding, you know, having quote unquote made it, and Steve Gutenberg had, who I love personally, <laughs> Steve, Guten, Steve Gutenberg having grown up from the guy who dances on the stage, the strippers are the guy who can actually get over his ridiculous Baltimore Colts test and uh, move on with his life. I do think it was a triumphant moment for these group of guys. That being said, when taken in concert with these other four movies, the last three about people trying to feed their families and failing um, or like failing and coming back or struggling, uh, it is an interesting indictment of the boomer generation who had it all fucking wrong from the beginning. But I never thought Barry Levinson was putting that out there. I don't think that was intentional. I think my take is that Diner had to be the first one. That was He was the youngest when he made that. It, it was about his youth and... I think that had to come out first to make room for everything else. And I think upon reflection, if Diner had come out last, it would feel like more of a deliberate indictment. Mm -hmm. I think it is kind of an indictment that naively was not intentional. He didn't have enough space to reflect and realize that maybe. Does that make sense? It yeah. makes a lot of sense. I agree with this take strongly. Thanks. Can I just, um, I, 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 I want to just quickly, um, I, I agree with you, Kenny. I don't think Diner, and, and we texted about this a little bit. Um, I, don't, I don't think that Diner on a, on a story level is a particularly good story um, I, I, or, or a particularly great script. That being said, what I love about Diner and Tin Men and Avalon and felt was lacking in Liberty Heights was... Um, the messiness of dialogue, the vibe of the dialogue, the way everyone talks over each other, the the the, the crackle and kind of that um, that electricity in those scenes that feel so lived in, right? I, don't I talked agree to Kenny at all. That's fine. I I think that you know, I talked about this with Kenny a little bit in terms of those sort of those hangout scenes in diner feel very reminiscent, or or at least feel as though you can see a little Tarantino, you can see a little Favreau, you can see a little bit of Linklater uh, in terms of that sort of letting these people talk the way people talk. They talk over each other. There's that almost Almond-esque way that everyone talks over each other. Um, those dinner scenes, those family dinner scenes in Avalon have that 
cacophony of of voices. Um, the the Tin Men scenes when all of them are in scenes together, those large group scenes also have that energy to it. I did not feel that energy in Liberty Heights as much. Um, it's not to say that I didn't like the scenes in Liberty Heights. Uh, and by that, I mean the scenes with the kids at the diner or wherever they might very well be congregating. But it just, my issue with Liberty Heights ultimately is that I think it has a little bit of air in it. And if you could have pulled like 10 minutes out of it, it just would have moved a little better for me. It just, it felt a little slow. I don't, I don't dislike the film and I'll, we'll talk about all the reasons that I, that, that we do like it. Um, but it, it does feel different from these, from the other three films um, in, 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 a, in, a, in a couple ways. I think in what I just mentioned in terms of, of, of uh, pacing, but also in terms of production, um, Liberty Heights looks exquisite. Christopher Doyle, who's a tremendous cinematographer who's shot uh, some of Wong Kar Wai's films, is a phenomenal director of photography, and the film looks exquisite. Um, it looks a lot better than the previous three films, ultimately. Like, it, it really just, it's, it's really soaking in the period in a way that's beautiful and loving, and I'm absolutely pulled into it, but it doesn't have the grain that you have in uh, Alan Davido's photography in, in Avalon, which is intentional. It's supposed to look like those old movies of the time. So it's just, it's just different vibes. Um, they all hold together. We've talked about how all four of these films are, are wonderful and they all hold together in their own different ways. I just felt like Liberty Heights felt a little bit like the largest gap he had. I mean, I think it was over, over 12 or 13 years um, between... Mm-hmm. Nine years between Avalon. Okay, nine years in Avalon. So I just felt that gap a little bit. I felt a little bit like, it feels a little bit like him going back to the well. And I don't, I I know that sounds more negative than it should, but it it, it does feel a little bit like a film that he, um, you know, might not have intended to make when he made the the previous three films. And and for all we know, I don't even know if Avalon was something. I don't know if he ever thought about it as a trilogy. I, I think it could have kind of just fallen together that these four films happened. But, you know, that, that's sort of, that's, uh, that's where I fall on. <laughs> Can I say one thing about Diner before we... Please. Get uh, Into Liberty Heights? Yeah. So Diner's never going to be my favorite movie. Um <laughs> For a lot of reasons. Um, I do really like it, though. But I think you touched upon this, Phil. The legacy of it, it was the first to really be a... I don't know. I was reading all these articles about it. And basically, they credit it with being the first, quote-unquote, successful um, film or TV show or whatever about nothing. And, you know, there's this whole conversation that Barry Levinson had with one of the producers about the scene with the roast beef at the diner when he's like, are you going to eat that? If you're going to eat that, I won't eat it, but you're not eating that. Are you going to, whatever that whole thing, which I think we've all (laughs) felt at some point. And the producer was like, there's no story there. And Barry was basically like, that's the point, you know, this is about that, the feeling it invokes. And this is about the fact that that conversation, which doesn't, push the plot forward, it illustrates the history these guys have with each other and their comfort level and just the familiarity and just what their relationship is. And that is what he was trying to achieve. And I think he did that 
like leaps and bounds beyond what he even probably expected to do. So for that reason, I think it's kind of fascinating. And when you go and you start listing the other, like the legacy of it and Mm -hmm. the things that followed, I think you're absolutely right. And I think Diner, you know, it's, it's one of Judd Apatow's favorite films or his favorite film for a reason. And you see that in the bones of all of his own work. And so I think it was very influential. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it has a place in history because of the fact that it was the first to do what it did. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that I, I totally, I, I absolutely agree that um, I would never ride for what you were talking about, Kenny, in terms of the Colts trivia for, for your future wife. I would, there's, there's no world where I would oh. ride for that, for that plot development, but the vibe of it, um, that roast beef scene. I mean, I could live in those, in the diner scenes, you know, forever. I, I just think those are great. Uh, I want to make something clear. I don't give a shit about the Colts thing. It's also like it's my dad's like favorite little little sticky thing. So it's like it's not that it's not that I I'm mad at it. I yeah. I'm mad. I think it's hilarious that they they did that. Uh and I think that in and of itself what Diner was able to do in taking these six actors all Wonderful actors, wonderful, wonderful actors, and make them feel like lifelong best friends. Best friends is pretty amazing. Um, I do think that what had what it wrought is not a great thing. I do think that people thinking that uh, they could just have people sitting around just talking and not be about anything. (laughs) You can do it. If yeah. you're amazing, yeah, if you're great, yeah. <laughs> but you, but you, you can't just do it unless you're amazing. Now, I think we've moved far, we've moved oh. away from that, thank God. But for a period of time, I heard over and over again, it's going to be like Diner, it's going to be like Diner, which just says to me, my dialogue is super clever yeah. and my friends are super interesting. Yeah. Um, and maybe I am sensitive to this because that was basically what Entourage was. Like, it was like, it's going to be Diner. We love Diner. But it's, <laughs> it is a problem yeah. when you just think that your ability to write dialogue and exchanges in a diner or in some kind of enclosed location uh, is a substitute for a compelling narrative. Give me I, I, a narrative. Give me the story. Give me Tarantino every day of the week and let the let the incredible dialogue be an accoutrement to a super compelling story. Um, I completely agree. Sorry, Toby. I didn't mean to cut you off. You didn't. We talked at the same time. You can go. I, I was just, I, I I think that um I a hundred percent agree. You know, many an indie film in the 90s and early 2000s suffered from, you know, uh, people thinking that they could do what Levinson does here or, quite frankly, what I think Richard Linklater does. Linklater does, yeah. um, Of just allowing people to talk uh, because you love these people and you love what they have to say. And it, it, it might not be clever all the time. But it will be genuine. I mean, the roast beef scene is funny. I don't know that's necessarily clever. It works because of the banter. Oh, it works because ro- of, it, but you know what works, I mean? Like, I love yeah. the roast beef scene because yeah. uh, Paul Reiser's character. It's so great. That's, that's it was largely a real, improv. That's a real yeah. guy who I deeply yeah. fucking despise. 
and I really, I really identify with Gutenberg being like, are you all fucking with me here? You don't understand what this guy is doing? The there nothing drives me more nuts than the person who asked the open on the, the, the open and obtrusive question and yeah. just falls back on what? What's the big deal? <laughs> Grow the fuck up. You want a piece of the sandwich? Answer the sandwich. All right. So I love so so now I've, I've changed my mind. I love this movie. Yeah. But I also <laughs> I love this movie, but I also feel like you know uh, it, that that what it wrought uh, is very not good. Totally, that's how I, I feel. That. Yes, and one of the things that it part of its legacy. I don't want to say that it wrought this because I like this, and I don't think you can rot things that you like necessarily. <laughs> Who knows? It. Let's 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 Who see knows? what it is. Um, it was also one of the first movies to really incorporate um, a lot of random pop culture references. Um, they're talking not just sports, but they're talking about um, different Fuckers. TV shows yeah. and movies and the whole Sinatra, Sinatra of it, which we find yeah. again in um, Mathis, yeah, well, Liberty we, Heights, that's, that's yeah. which awesome. I loved. Um, yes. But I... That's how I'm built. That's how I write. That's mm-hmm. who I am. Mm-hmm. And so learning that this was one of the first films yeah. to kind of like stick its neck up and be like, hey, did you see that episode of blah, blah, blah? Like that to me yeah. is everything. I, I, I like that. Agree more. I like that better in a period piece than That's I true. do in something. Mo- I like it in, mo- in, in a modern show. Fine if it's good. Mm-hmm. But in a period piece, that does scratch me like where I itch. You know what I mean? So what about something like Reality Bites, which now feels like a period piece, but it mm-hmm. was it was quote unquote modern day and it was completely reflecting on it was built on nostalgia and for pop culture. It was also I will say this about Reality Bites, which is trying to do two things. It's a little bit referential to their adolescence so like Mm -hmm. it is kind of period within itself a little bit but then it's obviously trying to be zeitgeisty with your gap and your melrose place and your what have you's but yeah i I think that that movie's trying to have his cake needed too and successfully doing so but yeah it's it's okay in general um and particularly in like the 90s it's a different story than perhaps today but it's okay with general your whole idea is to get the point across and if you can get the point across you, you, whatever works whatever it w- works i i love it in a period piece and i also like it in retrospect because i think it's fun to see what was important enough to uh reference at the time the way a melrose place reference worked the way a gap reference worked uh mm-hmm. within the context of the of the script um i do you know look i try not to do it uh anymore because i do feel like people ding it but um you know, if I was writing something like South Park and I knew that I could write something today and it would be on the air in four days, I would do it all the time. <laughs> you know? Like, I just watched that South Park, uh, the one they just put out, the Q and the pandemic thing. I haven't seen it, it, but yeah. It it only works because they were able to write it on Thursday and put it out on Sunday. Everything moves so <laughs> fast now that sure. all the jokes would have been old, will be old in a few days. Yeah. Um, all right, let me give a synopsis of Liberty Heights an hour into this podcast. Uh, this semi I think that's by- not actually our record, by the way. <laughs> not even close. It's not our record in this podcast. I mean, we've just, some I'm of the reasons we've done it. 
Yeah. Uh, this semi-autobiographical film by Barry Levinson follows various members of the Kurtzman clan, a Jewish family living in suburban Baltimore during the 1950s. As teenaged Ben, played by Ben Foster, completes high school, he falls for Sylvia, played by Rebecca Johnson, a black classmate, creating inevitable tensions. Meanwhile, Ben's brother Van, played by Adrian Brody, attends college and becomes smitten with a mysterious woman and their father, Joe Mantegna, tries to maintain his burlesque business. Liberty Heights opened on November 17th, 1999 against Pokemon, the bone collector, the... Uh, it would go on to make $3.7 million on a $11 million budget. It's got 85% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 76 from audiences. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars and said, Liberty Heights has some weaknesses. I thought that the little Melvin character was a little too broadly drawn, and I thought that the whole subplot about how he tries to collect his winnings could not unfold as it does here. The Mantania character comes across not merely as a nice guy, but pos- positively Gandhi-like. But those flaws are not fatal, and the movie emerges as an accurate memory of that time when the American melting pot splendid as a theory became a reality um yeah i mean i think that this film also feels uh it 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 kind of sticks out in 99 as um kind of i don't want to say a relic necessarily but it, it it does feel like um levinson at this point doesn't feel as relevant as he did you know five so, so such years earlier. So the film does feel a little bit sort of, um, I just, I keep thinking about, you know, being John Malkovich, Magnolia, Fight Club. I think about how crazy a year it was and why, and it doesn't surprise me that a film like this gets lost in that. You know what I mean? When you, when, when you have a year of like election and, and I guess even to a degree American beauty, it's not crazy to me that this film doesn't pop, but I don't know how you guys think about, feel about that. It certainly feels like an early 90s film. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. And it feels like a Barry Levinson film. And Barry Levinson films are very much of the 1980, early 80s, but really like that 85, 86 Good Morning Vietnam thing um, through the the early 90s. I mean, you know, you look at his, um, you look at his filmography and I think he kind of finishes with Bugsy in 91. Now, I, I want to... Say, <laughs> Wag the Dog is a great movie. Well, I think Sleepers is. I think Sleepers is a pretty good movie too. Um, but those don't really feel very quite as Barry Levinsony as this run uh, from Diner, The Natural, Tin Man, Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, Avalon, Bugsy. Right, those were movies that really could only be made in that period, nineteen eighty four to nineteen ninety one, and feel right. very Levinsony. And this uh, Liberty Heights also feels like it falls. Back I would, there, I would. Uh, I agree with you on the wag the dog. It does not feel like a Levinson film. I think that Sleepers, Sleepers has kind of does vibes of this tetralogy, much darker than and also anything he's done. I remember I read the book of Sleepers before it came out because I knew that he was making it and that? it had this cast okay. and I was interested and what have you. Um, that's a prime example of. He just got over his skis. It's too long. Like you have these megawatt stars. You like the movie should be ninety five percent them, but instead it's like fifty percent kids and fifty percent older cast. You got to sit through forty five minutes to an hour of those kids before you even get to your main cast, which is sort of insane. Like Sleepers is is one of those movies that like I wish similar to the minus man that we could re-edit sleepers and it would actually be I disagree a fantastic with you, man because like the 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 kid stuff is the stuff 
the, the kid stuff, stuff is the stuff, but the kid awful. stuff can can absolutely do what it needs to do and not take up an hour of screen but time. You, but you don't want to watch that courtroom stuff. You don't want to watch Brad Pitt as the bumbling fake the the bumbling fake prosecutor prosecuting his own case. The whole thing is it's an absurd premise. Billy Crudup is just the journalist assigned to the case and no, that's, it's that's jason patrick sorry jason patrick is just the journalist assigned to the billy crudup is one of the murderers he's one of the murderers him and ron eldard yeah Listen, good I, murder I, it was a good murder the guy deserved to die not saying he, it's a bad murder <laughs> it's, I, it, listen it's listen it's it's a weird movie that doesn't work i'm not writing for it i just think there's a mo- there's an interesting movie in that and i think that that yeah, was the stand, the stand by me part i think i I think that the 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 Barry Levinson that connect like the sleepers that connects Barry Levinson has a whole third act to his career. I think that sleepers is for all intents and purposes that's when when the the, the rubber meets the road for him. But, but he did but wag the dog. That he did wag the dog the next year. So like he certainly had his chance to come back, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he you know he did sphere, which anyone would do. And uh, everyone's favorite Michael Crichton adaptation. Yeah, but anyone would do that because it really was the next one up. Of course, sure, sure, and right. uh, and I think it's Not with that cast though. I think it's Liberty Heights that 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 destroyed him. You it spend eleven million dollars on like your fourth passion project, you make three point yeah. seven, yeah. Uh, and the movie got good reviews. So that yeah. almost I think signals, you know, the the thing this guy's selling is just not connecting with. Having a cast of Dustin Hoffman, Sharon Stone, and Samuel L. Jackson is a choice, though. That's a strange cast cast. for that movie. Can we talk about casting as far as movies I've actually seen? Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Don't apologize. I just can't add to it. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. um, Without being snarky. Um, The casting, I mean, obviously, Diner is ridiculous, and a lot of those people... Uh, I mean, Paul Reiser literally went with a friend to the audition and the <laughs> casting director saw him in the hall and was like, do you have a headshot? You know, and, are you I Jewish? Mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and all those people obviously went on um, to yep. do huge things. It's um, an amazing thing. You To go yeah. seven for seven like that is wild. <laughs> also, can, at some point we should discuss how 80s Mickey Rourke looked in the 50s. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. He looked um, hot. He looked really, really hot. Like he was well, that's a given at that age, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, he was really the, uh, if I were to rank them based on attractiveness, which is, you know, the kind of thing I would do, he's so far and above the rest of them. But I don't, I, I think who's Cooper number two? Got it. Gutenberg's Tim got Daly. it too. Oh, Tim, Tim Daly. Daly. I forgot. So there, so, so the goys what, ba- what about Bacon? Like, Kevin Bacon? I have a good very special. He was a complete doofus in this. He was so young. Yeah, it's a He's a good looking guy. It's so funny. I always forget him, and he's really, really central to this film. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. there, there might have been a they, like. There's a version, and they don't do this, and I give him credit for it. But there's a version where you're you're with Tim Daly from the moment he you know comes back into town and follow mm-hmm. him to the diner, and he's your way in as his best friend's getting married. I but. Uh, Yo, I think I think the movie's really, really, really well done. Um, <laughs> I love that no, we have successfully turned you around on Diner. You did. I was down on Diner going into this, but now, now, now I've changed my mind. I think. It's but I, I want to talk about the the casting of Liberty Heights, which Thank I think you, is yeah. fantastic. I, I think that that pre, pretty much across the board, Shockingly. this movie's very well cast. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, you know, the, the, I know that that uh, Ebert highlights the Melvin character that's played by Orlando Jones in his review, saying that he's too broadly written, and and that might very well be true. But the casting of Orlando Jones is actually really fascinating to me. I think that that casting exemplifies the high wire act he's trying to do with this film in terms of the tone. Like he's trying to find that balance of of, of comedy and drama, which I think the film pretty successfully does, um, even if Orlando might not be absolutely on point. Um, I think that, uh, that Ben Foster, Adrian Brody are both fantastic. I, I mean, B.B. Newworth just Everyday luminescent Brody. in this yeah. film. Like, I just, I mean, unreal. Um, Joe Mantegna, also fantastic. Even if I thought he was, he could have been a little scarier. Like, he didn't feel as dangerous as I kind of would have liked him to be, but I don't know how you guys felt about that. I just couldn't <laughs> stop thinking about the fact that I just kept thinking about Joe and Aiden Quinn and how they were, for all intents and purposes, well, Aiden Quinn was more of a lead than Joe, I guess, but they're not Jewish. Not and Jewish. Yeah. Aiden Quinn was a great Jew. Great and I Jew. I was so proud. I mean, he was just really good. And I think yeah. you have to be careful because it can become a little offensive. Um, but- Talk about good looking Jews, though. It's annoying, yeah. and also you three generations in- of blue-eyed Jews. You've got oh, uh, yeah. Armin Mirstal and and uh, and Aiden Quinn and Elijah Wood, and a blue-eyed <laughs> Jew on this. <laughs> it's a thing. I wish you guys uh, could have seen Kenny uh, just get as close little- to the camera as he possibly yeah, I should. I, I, should bring, I should bring in my little Aryan children so you can see a couple <laughs> of blue-eyed Jews. But, uh, but, but I think. All right, so I. I think that's it's really interesting thing. First of all, it's so <laughs> annoying that when you have to cast a good-looking Jew, you go goy. Um, <laughs> happens all the time, you know. I mean, like Brendan Fraser, you're a good-looking Jew in that movie. True. true. Where you go to the uh, the 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 Jews of Munich. I mean, come on with that shit. Banna and Craig are your Jews. <laughs> the Jews the, of Munich. The Jews of Munich. I mean, it's a great yeah. album. Junix. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it turned us into Unix. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> hey! Uh, but Aiden Quinn, this is the first thing I saw when I thought when I saw Aiden Quinn on screen. Uh, I immediately looked up to see if he ever played Frank Sinatra. Because, my sure. God, he really looks he like, Frank, a, like a young Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. I thought he was great. Uh, I absolutely loved Joe Montana in Liberty Heights. Um, uh, if he was scarier, it would have made the scene where he had to say goodbye uh, less mm-hmm. effective. It's true. And that was my favorite moment of all it's four a great movie. Moment. It like destroyed me when he takes the two boys into. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Like yep. that, that, and and BB Newer's story about him getting his, you know, getting beaten up and then going to the JCC and learning to fight, and that that's a really good character thing. And he did kind of figure it out with Little Melvin, but he kind of didn't. And he just, it's just this and Tin Man. And Avalon to some extent too. You know, there are so many incredible success stories about first and second second generation Jews in terms of finding their way in various weirdo industries. Mm -hmm. If you look at all the Jews you know whose grandparents and parents have had success, it's in things like like shoe shining or importing textiles or all these weird vacuum cleaners, all these weird things that they just found some little way in. But every Jew didn't succeed, and every everyone didn't. Every immigrant didn't succeed, and the stories of these people who couldn't figure it out—it's mm-hmm. crushing. Mm-hmm. Like well, the, I, oh. sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say it's interesting though because Sam and Avalon—you get a glimpse at his failures. He talks about the nightclub that he owned, you yeah. know, stuff like that. And then um, his brother's bailing him out too. That's one of the things that, uh, that his brother's yes. upset about when he cuts the. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but the thing as far as was his name, Nate was the was Joe. Nate was Joe Montana. Nate was Joe Montana. Um, I don't think I would have cared for him as much if he was um, a little meaner or more dangerous because it broke my heart that he found himself in this burlesque industry. Um, and was floundering and just doing it all for his family. One of the things he says when he says goodbye to his kids is that their education is still covered. Mm-hmm. That's what it was all for. You know, I also, sorry, go, please, sorry. Toby, didn't make no, no, no. no. So, so my point is, I think he was more sympathetic because he was quite a kind of a quiet giant. Mm-hmm. I, I also feel like, and now I'm going to, I'm going to take back my, my, my note of saying that he needed to be more dangerous because there's one moment when you sense how scary he can be and it's when Ben dresses up as Adolf Hitler for Halloween and obviously his mother is like you're not going out Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, yes Uh, and his mother's like you're not going out like that she calls the father at work and says your son is dressed up like Adolf Hitler he says put Adolf on the phone we don't hear what the father says but the Mm -hmm. reaction on Ben and he says put the fear on the phone yeah yeah yeah. and and he's at the reaction the body language you don't know what he's saying but you know it's not good and you know that it's scary does actually maybe speak to what I was talking about so what do you guys think of that moment? Not the <laughs> not the moment you're talking about, but the moment when Ben Foster's character decided to dress as Adolf Hitler. I yeah. think that is one of the moments in the film that proves how heavy-handed the statement was. Sure. I don't know. I felt it felt divisive. It felt unnecessary kind of for me. I did I didn't need it, but I don't know, if, you know, how you feel Kenny. Uh, I mean, I love I mean, a guy I, in uniform, but come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I felt the way you guys felt, um, and I, I, I was all like, like it was the kind of moment where I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be in on this movie. 
Um, I was kind of trying, you know, it, it, it puts a lot of thoughts into your head. So basically what happens is Ben Foster, you know, it's around Halloween and he's talking to his grandmother. What should I do for Halloween? You should, you should be a pirate or a Viking or some other stupid shit. He comes down dressed as Adolf Hitler. It's an excellent costume. Um, it is a well worthy, done. Yeah. Worthiest, uh, sound of the, uh, worthiest sound of music. It's beautiful. Uh, except for the swastika on his one. Um, but it, all right, so it got me thinking one, all right, this takes place in 1954. They say in the movie, nine years after the war ended, uh, at that moment, how would that have been received in the nineties? Was that an acceptable joke? Because this is still your protagonist, right? I, I, I don't mean an acceptable joke. I yeah, mean, yeah. the kind of joke you can come back from because if someone did that today you could not come back from that that would be the end of that character you would never root for that character again i think it's the equivalent of blackface yeah it's as bad for sure but in 99 clearly levinson thought this was just some kind of transgressive joke that that your yeah that your you know your sympathetic protagonist can do as a way to you know stick his thumb in the eye of his presumably you know I don't even want to say anything else. Some of the side is religious Jewish parents and his religious mm-hmm. Jewish grandparents in a lighthearted way. Um, and that seemed, that was very tone deaf to me. Uh, I, I couldn't I agree. I couldn't so. agree with you more. It, 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 I will say this, you know, up until this point for the most, Levinson knows where the line is. Like he's always kind of known where the joke is. Mm-hmm. So this, that was a, I think we can all agree a pretty significant miscalculation in terms of him thinking like, this is an audacious joke mm-hmm. that I'm going to, that's totally going to fly right now. Um, and it doesn't. It also, if I'm being completely honest, I'm not even really sure. I totally know what Ben's end game was. Like it, it feels, it feels sort of like a thing that happens because he needed something to happen as opposed to, it just didn't feel motivated. I just didn't get it. Well, flip side of that devil's yeah. advocate is it falls flat in the way a ch- that choice from a naive teenager would fall flat. He doesn't yes. see the whole picture. Yes. On correct. that level, That's I true. think it works. That, that, might, that, it might, just, that might be true. It, it does work narratively because mm-hmm. I still liked that character. Sure. It just feels like some things are just beyond the pale in terms of the, you know, outside of the movie. Yeah. Where you start thinking, where you stop thinking about the character, and you start thinking about why would the director and writer do this? You know, yeah, I've seen some yeah. d- d- depictions Sorry. of some some comedic depictions of Hitler that really work well, like the producers or Charlie um, Chaplin, or well, sure, yeah, or uh, I was thinking, I don't know if you guys ever saw that show, Man Seeking Woman. So I'm a richer show. Heard of it? I never saw it though. There's a, an incredible Hitler riff in that. So it's not a, it's it's not impossible, Hitler but riff. it's but it's very uh, it's very delicate. And there is nothing delicate about this. There is nothing uh, funny about this. There was there was no comment here except yeah. for uh, and, and there was also really no. God, I really thought this moment was was ill conceived. There was no real uh, comeuppance for this character for doing that. I think it was um, an example of no. a, something, again, like you were talking about Little Melvin, this was too broad in a movie that wasn't broad. Yeah. I, I think it that mistake. it's... But aside from for, it, it really In terms of from a, from a plot perspective, it's, it feels like it's Ben's way of, and Ben being the character's way of sort of pushing back. 
because at this point he's so essentially you know we we've, we've we've seen the 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 pool or the or the dock that has bit that has a sign that says no jews blacks or coloreds um you you're certainly sensing that ben is feeling the you know the the box that jews are being put in he then meets sylvia this uh black student who's in his class he's and he's almost immediately smitten with her and feels as though he's not allowed to even talk with her so all of this is is again not writing for it but i'm just for our audience our listeners he is not that this allowed is, to talk to her he's not allowed to talk to her he's not That's allowed to very be near clear, her yeah. it's so he's wearing this this costume as a as a, a decree of being like you know i'm not allowed to do these things so i'm going to dress up as the person who you know obviously was a dictator uh, it, it does it doesn't work for as we've said, for all the reasons that we've discussed, but I just wanted to give some context so people understood where it was coming from. He didn't just dress up like it um, for absolutely no reason. It's just a not a great reason. Um, um, we then get to meet the person who is obviously in this film, David Crumholtz. Obviously, had to be in this. Film. He had a big year. <laughs> of playing himself. <laughs> I mean, as, the only as time we- he hasn't played himself was when he stabbed Lucian Carter. On ER. on ER, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, somehow, uh, David Crumholtz, no offense to David Crumholtz, I think he knows this, not a good-looking man, but very hot in Freaks and Geeks. It's the weirdest <laughs> thing. We did that. We did his episode. <laughs> is is he hot in Ice Storm? Is he hot in Ice Storm? No. everybody was hot in Ice Storm. Anti-hot. Anti-hot. It's called Ice Storm. Storm. That's ironic. Because (laughs) everyone's hot. He also got laid a lot in that movie, apparently. I haven't seen that in forever. Uh, so no, he's 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 anti hot in almost every movie. But how he pulled that off in Freaks and Geeks, I don't understand. He's like he's, he also has pulled off the blonde hair somehow. Does he, he? pull off the blonde hair? <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Like, I I I love a movie that demystifies the fifties, right? I love a movie that that you know it's not all fucking you know sock hops and 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 poodle skirts and shit like that. On horses, mm. blonde David Crumble. Oh my god, we're gonna have to talk about Carolyn Murphy. Um, but why should I know Caroline Murphy? I'm I'm sorry because like is she something? She's a she, model. She okay. was a supermodel. She's never acted before, never acted since. But she's a supermodel. That's, that's the answer I was looking she's for. Never acted. But I thought she was really good. You guys didn't think she was really good? <laughs> I thought think- I thought she was absolutely fine. I don't think she like blew me away. But but when I read stuff Uh-oh, about I- how she was she was this was her first role, and I was like, oh, I. Why? So if that makes sense, I would have pinned. I mean, we've seen a lot of supermodels a heap as far as first timers go. She was very good. Um, I thought she was real alluring and uh, real self composed. That was not an easy scene that she had to do with Adrian Brody in the beginning, or the um, scene in the motel for that matter. Yeah, the motel. Yeah. No, motel. Mo- mo- yeah. Well, that that was really she. She really had to put herself out there for that one. She really did, and she did. Um, it's. Let's keep going on the movie. Well, yeah, wait, the Crumholtz of it all. Yes, Crumholtz. Yeah. One thing that stuck out for me, mm-hmm. there he was on ER, Shane West was on ER, Justin Chambers and Sylvia's father were yes. both on Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> I'm watching and this and I was like, all of these future doctors for the most part. Yes. Mm. And there were, there were at least two freaks and geeks people too because it was Crumholtz and someone else. Oh, Ben Foster. Ben Foster. Both freaks sure. and geeks. Oh my God, I forgot about that. Yeah. He's so wonderful. Oh, yeah. And I... He is one of those people who I give credit to him for how kind of deliberate and seemingly picky he is with mm-hmm. the projects he chooses. 
Totally. That said, I think he could be what Sean Penn used to be before Sean Penn got super complicated. I think mm-hmm. he... Easily. Didn't you also date Robin Wright? For a long time. Yeah, ironically. Yeah, um, Sean Penn connection, that's all. Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. Yes, so yes, he's working on it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I think he could be a household yeah. name and he's not. And that kind of fascinates me. Cause I, I think, think he's, I think he's, I love Ben Foster. Um, one of my favorite roles is, uh, when he was on six feet under, he was tremendous on that. Um, and I love him. Uh, he's really great in this. I mean, again, we said this earlier, but like, it's a stacked cast. There really is not a week a weak, you know, link in the chain of this of this entire cast. But uh, in terms of plot, basically, Van played by Adrian Brody. Um, can we talk about Adrian Brody for just a quick second? There's a lot more, of plot in this. This is yeah. We'll, we'll get, we'll, Adrian we'll, Brody for yeah. for a long time. Just a, for a quick, I just want to say he's wearing a wig in this, right? Because he's got a mohawk in in Summer of Sam, and I think he's wearing a wig in this. Maybe I'm be. wrong. No wig um, shaming, though. I don't mean I'm not wig shaming. I think it's an effective wig, but I look at the <laughs> sides and the way that it just it looks just slightly off. But that's neither here nor there. Let's. I, I want to give Toby. Yeah. I want to give Toby a long second on Adrian Brody. Yeah, please, what, Adrian Brody. What, let's talk about him. I, I'm, we, I'm a we, big fan. What are we thinking? What are we thinking when we, when we think of Adrian Brody? I immediately think that I shouldn't have quit piano. That's my first thought. Always. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, sure, sure. But I really like him. I think he's mm. fascinating. I think he pulled off being a Jew, even though I feel like he seems more Italian. I know he's half Jewish, but he wasn't raised Jewish, but I bought it. And him, I mean, when you put him and Ben Foster next to each other and you say these are brothers. Same gene pool. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't work. They made it work. Well, uh, I mean, Ben was the only one who wasn't, you know, brown and brown hair and yeah. eyes or whatever. Yeah. Um, it happens. I know. But I do, I do <laughs> thoroughly enjoy Adrian Brody. I think I watched this film and we talked, we talked to Adrian Brody a little bit on our Summer of Sam episode with, uh, with Katrina Longworth. But I do think that um, he should have been bigger. I, and and I, I often look at one film as a film that weirdly derailed three careers um, in terms of being big is. movie stars. King the jacket. Yeah, oh. yeah, the jacket. <laughs> uh, I think that King Kong, I think that Naomi Watts, Adrian Brody, and Jack Black all should have been bigger stars. And I think all of them had these expectations put on that film. And I, I, obviously it's not just that movie, but I do feel like you can kind of look at that film and see it as a, as a kind of moment for them. But uh, I love Adrian Brody. I think he's got a, a fascinating look. He's got a, a really cool vibe. Do you uh, watch Beauty o- Blinders? I have not yet, but I hear... Yeah, watch I it with subtitles, first of all, because <laughs> it's impossible to understand. He is on it, and he's fantastic. I mean, I love that he got... He, I mean, he's in some Wes Anderson films, and, mm-hmm. and Wes, you know, obviously... Um, he he seems like he belongs in his films. Just his look is just so specific. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, I watched this film the other day and just really was really wish that that Adrian Brody got to be a big movie star or at least a leading man. I um, think he got to be a big movie star. I just don't think he was able to handle it. Uh, I just don't think I agree with you guys. You know, <laughs> I, I don't think-, think he should 
he's not ever going to be my favorite. I don't think he's the most talented out there. I think people actually, it's interesting. He won. He was resented. Mm, I maybe, I think like. He also did not get Halle Berry's consent for that kiss, which is kind of fucked up, but that's neither here nor there. It was a weird move. Totally fucked up. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, We're on the same page. Well, the, nobody, nobody called him out on it until recently, but it is. It's, yeah. it's fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, but it, and people thought it was charming. Like it was replayed yeah. for years and years yeah. and years. Yeah. But I, I think like Adrian Brody's a weird case because Adrian Brody is somewhere between traditional character actor and uh and leading man yeah yeah like it's very hard i i here, uh, here's what i'm working with in this movie he is six inches taller than the next tallest jew he hangs out with <laughs> he is broader he is alpha he has his tough guy voice dresses well he walks into the room with confidence he is clearly the leading man of the jew group right uh but he is not and, and he's handsome i mean i think i think he's clearly yeah. handsome but yeah. he's not classically handsome right mm-hmm. he's not even handsome in a sean penn kind of way where it's like he's offbeat handsome right he he is he's too alpha to be a supporting character he's too unusual to be a classic leading man his best route forward is um just this is gonna sound crazy but great thespian where you put him in you put him in the roles that where you would be saying maybe it should be him or maybe it should be philip seymour hoffman or maybe it should be paul giamatti or maybe it should be daniel day lewis whoever can just do the best with it let's go with them right Mm -hmm. but he's not up to those guys standards He's just not up to the standards of our top, top, tippity top guys. So he winds up doing things like predators and you don't even know what to do with this guy. I, I think that you said something that I think is, and Toby as well, this, the, the, the unorthodox way he looks makes me think a lot about how, and our listeners probably know that I've been watching the AFI movies through, through the quarantine and watching a lot of films from the 60s and 70s when you were allowed to have a face, when you were allowed to look you know, unlike the Chris's that we all apparently think are, that's the new norm. Um, I think that's part of it. And this isn't me saying like, he's too weird looking to be a leading man. I agree with what you're saying, Kenny, which is he had a shot and it didn't happen for him. Um, but I do think that's a little bit a part of it. There's this idea that he just, he doesn't look like what we think a leading man's supposed to look like. What about Dustin Hoffman? But that. That's from a different time, is what I'm saying. I'm speaking of like Adrian Brody now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The Adrian now, Brody. Now is, I agree with now, you, Phil. Yeah. The now is weird. The now yeah. is, you know, I'm I, I, as I think I may have mentioned on the, on the previous podcast. I'm writing a show that you know any other time in history you'd be able to cast a leading man because it's all these people. It's, it's a Hoffman or it's a Richard Dreyfus or it's yep. these kind or you know or or you know another thing I'm writing where it would be a Pesci or a Devito. We don't make those guys anymore. Like we just don't make them. And sometimes we make them and they turn into Miles Teller. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Miles Teller was one of these guys until he became like Miles Teller, the bodybuilder man. Yep. So it's it's hard. Like I love yep. I love Tom Holland. I just don't want everybody to be Tom Holland. It's like you it's like we're allowed as a gift, like an Ezra Klein. Sorry, an Ezra Miller. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Like every now and then they'll give you, Hollywood will allow someone who feels just slightly off kilter to be perhaps a leading man if Flash even happens. Who knows? But I, I just, this is all just a long way of saying that I, I don't know. I, I dig Adrian Brody. I dig his vibe. I like what he brings to the pictures he's in. Um, I, I famously remember, uh, well, it's not famously, but I remember when we were casting Sleepy Hollow, they asked me who I thought should be Ichabod Crane, and I was like, Adrian Brody. <laughs> and they were like, uh, okay. And, and, and part of it was because in my brain, I'm like, that's what Ichabod Crane would look like in 2013. A million percent. But, you know, it's, and listen, Tom Meissen obviously loved him and very happy with the way it turned out. But my, my point is, he's just so strange. He's, it, there's, it's not even, he just feels so unorthodox and that's exciting. Um, but Kenny, you mentioned the scene at the party when he meets Dubby, which is not a name Dubby. that I've ever heard before. Um, have you guys ever heard you, of the name Dubby? You and the Jewish grandmother both. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Dubby, Dubby. Yeah. Uh, played by Catherine. Carolyn Murphy, is that her name? Sorry, my apologies. Yeah. Carolyn Murphy. Um, uh, and he's attracted to her. She's mysterious. They have a really great scene with a with a man. And then... And then, they, um, and then they had the banter about how Cinderella doesn't have a magic wand. Like, right, Phil, right. come it's on, good. man. I, All right, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shooting You're saying there's no banter. Scene? You're saying there's no there banter. Is, I'm not saying no banter. There's a lot of that kind of banter. It's, it's Well, I mean, when you have got Crumholtz in the mix, he's not going to screw that up. Crumholtz is great. Um, So then Crumholtz gets in a fight with Shane West. (laughs) It's an an ER off. They they have a fight. Um, And um, (laughs) revenge. Shockingly, Crumholtz doesn't doesn't do well in the fight. Um, And then Justin Chambers shows up and drives his car into a into a barn. Justin Chambers playing a lovely man. Very lovely. So like I he's didn't even know than Alex Karev ever was. What I didn't even know Justin Chambers existed before Grey's Anatomy. That was a shock either. to me to see him yeah. five years earlier in yeah. a major role in a Big major part. Movie, like yeah. in the role that you know you'd expect to go to Shane West and maybe he plays the second guy, mm-hmm. but uh, he's he looked great. Like he had a he, he had like great a great vibe. Like 100%. that's the that is what I thought Goys were like for the most part. Like he never gave up his, you know Goys in this period of time. Is Goy a mean word? Uh he never um he never gave up his his position of yeah. of of high status uh to a Jew, but he also wasn't, you know, a jerk about it. Like there was an interesting little moment where he figured out that Adrian Brody was in love with his girlfriend. And he, instead of like making fun of him or setting him up to fail or setting him up to be humility, he said, I'm just going to string him along and find someone who, who, who he likes. There'll be someone yeah. else that he There's likes. We'll, yeah. we'll it was hook very the guy up. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's like, a kind of a star making performance in a weird way that didn't happen until weird. obviously Gray's, you know, six years later. But yeah. And where he played well, the medical you know, the seventh school. He left guy here. And... He went to medical school. And <laughs> yeah, he, yes. <laughs> he played like um, the seventh guy in the call sheet on that, though. Like yeah. he and and he stuck around forever, and you know certainly made a name for himself. But like, yeah, I wish he gone in a different direction. Yeah. I don't think that. I, I mean, you know, he did a great job on Grays, and obviously the you know, the arc of that character was from like cocky asshole to like lovable guy, mm-hmm. but 
he like he was kind of born the second Alex Karaf. You know what I mean? Yep. He was kind of like that's who he more more is like the you know the the responsible and um what's the word I'm looking for like the hero of the downtrodden. He's he's very good in this movie. Um, even if I do question some of his motives at times, just in terms of like I know that he's I don't mean in the sense that he's a bad person, but it's just like. You know, we're jumping around, but like at the end when he's in the hospital bed and he's like, this might be your chance, man. Like, this is your chance to hook up with my ex. It was I a felt little honest. Bit... I'm not saying sad. it's dishonest. Yeah. It's still like a little weird. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, that, that, but I think that it's felt... messy in a teenage way. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. That felt suicidal to me. That felt like he just, I, I'm giving it all up. That's It's over for me. <laughs> um. So at this point, Ben... Um, Ben Foster's character, his character's name is Ben, uh, meets Sylvia and introduces himself. He he basically he basically follows her on the on the trolley car to her neighborhood. Um, they have a really but nice sits, chemistry. But sits with her. It's a little different than yeah. like than an outright yeah. stalking. Yeah, no, he I'm, gets I on to next to her it. and no, no, I know. But they talk to each other. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He gets on next to her. He talks to her. Like mm-hmm. he certainly he's certainly like made sure that she yeah. knew what was going on before he For just sure. started following her. And right. they have great chemistry. They have she's wonderful chemistry. She's a great actress. She's great. And I looked her up and she's been, she basically has been in like three films in her life, but like she, her name, I think her name is, uh, I Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rebecca Johnson. But I think, um, I think she could have been a big star. They, I, I their scenes amazing. together are, are wonderful. They're, yeah, they are. Tre- I mean, most of their scenes are, are uh, I mean, the, there's a big chunk they have basically in her bedroom um, where they're listening to comedy records and then they're listening to, to music records and um, they dance. Somehow and- Ben premature ejaculates, you know, but because um, well, she, I mean, touches I, I think his you, leg. I think you know how, Phil. I mean, I understand the physics of it, um, the biological reason that it happened. I think it's a little unlikely that her touching his leg would create such, a, but, you know, anyway. Who knows? Those scenes are those scenes are fraught with peril. Yes. Those are dangerous scenes to put in a movie. Yes. Yes. That's a dangerous relationship to put in a movie. It almost always comes across as preachy or sanctimonious or mm-hmm. cloying or mm-hmm. or alarmist. And they there was just a perfect, in my it was opinion, honest. yes, hundred uh, percent, yeah, a very honest, a perfect like my handled it the way I not necessarily the way I would expect, but a way that I believed. Um, I, I, I thought those were kind of the, I, I really love the stuff with, with the family, but I thought those were really, really strong scenes in those this scenes movie. also. Oh, I'm sorry, Kenny. That's it. No, no, go ahead. They also surprised me. There were some turns where some reactions, um, were unexpected in a lovely sort of way. Yeah. Um, yeah, she I can't think of it. Anything she picked him up in her mother's car, which surprised me. She told mm-hmm. him to get down under the under the sea, which he did. Like she, there was no, um, there was no pursuer and pursued. They yes. were going Correct. into this together mm-hmm. at the right pace. At a pace, I believe this wasn't about sex; it was about connection. Totally. Um, it was. It's an interesting little thought experiment about what integration actually meant, right? If the if the goal of integration were to have black people and white people in the same space where they can get to know each other, this is going to happen. And yet everybody involved is like, no, this shouldn't happen. Well, what are you guys doing? 
Well, I mean, why are you, why are we integrating schools if you don't want these people to get to know each other? So uh, I loved it. And I even loved the kiss at the end. Like I thought that I was loved the kiss at the end. And then the moment off. where Adrian throws his arm around Ben yeah. Yeah. Um, as B.B. Newworth slowly yeah. dies. Yeah. I just love B.B. Newworth at that point, just sitting down in one of the pews, <laughs> Joe Mantegna taking a picture, potentially accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all, it's, it's, it's a really, oh, it's a really deft, uh, execution of it. I would also say too, um, is, is it, I forgive me, the actor's name who, uh, from Grey's as well, is it Perkins? Yeah, I think it's James Pickens. Jim Perkins? Jr. James Pickens? I think it's Pickens. My apologies. Yeah. Um, He's a chief, as as, right? as Sylvia's uh, father um, is wonderful when Another he walks actor. in on them. He walks into so so Sylvia and Ben are hanging out. Uh, the father great. comes home early, so Sylvia panics and tells you know tells Ben to to get in the closet. Father walks into the room, sees Ben's shoes, realizes something's rotten in Denmark. Says, "What's going on here?" and says, "You know, um, Mister Kirsten, please come out of the out of the closet." Um, he then drives him home. They have a wonderful scene together, which, and I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of context. It's earlier in a diner scene. We, we realize that Ben refuses to leave a car if a, if a Frank Sinatra song is playing. You can't, you can't walk out on Sinatra. So when the dad is driving, Sylvia's dad is driving him home, he pulls up to his house and Sinatra's playing. And Ben refuses to get out of the car until the Sinatra song is done. It's a tremendous scene. It's a fucking and the dad perfectly played. It. He charms him yes. in that moment. Uh, he charms him. It's true. Because yes. the, the dad goes, all right, it's over. Like, that's great. That's like, you know, there's something really amazing about that little yes. all right. I, I have I have accepted your ridiculous <laughs> cultural submissions. <laughs> uh, but it also just clocked out. So goodbye. One thing I will say, I respected the fact that both families had equipped both parents had equivalent reactions to um, their relationship there was no nothing was heightened there was no super villain you know i mean it was i just think it was go back to the word i think it was just very honest which certainly seems seems true to life that certainly seems like all sides were like Mm -hmm. public places hang out Private places, we're sticking to our own. So, I do it, it give should, like that's the only thing I give boomers credit for just a, just taking one step forward in that regard. I do. You you mentioned the kill me now, um, Toby. Earlier in the film, uh, Ben mentions to his mother that there's a a black girl in his class named Sylvia, um, and I think he says, I don't know if he attractive. calls her. He says attractive, attractive. and yeah. she just says. Kill me now. Kill, like, like she's already five steps ahead. She knows what he means when he says something like that. And it, it's, she's, I mean, God, B.B. Newirth can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. She's, she's one of the standouts in Summer of Sam as well with her and Adrian Brody. Um, don't have scenes together, oh, I don't yeah. think. But, um, but that's, that's a, a weird reunion in this film. Um, but yeah, she's, she's just, she's wonderful. What she does with a look, her... The thing about her is her presence. It's like she doesn't even need to say anything. It's just B.B. Dorth is in this scene and you will take notice of that. There's a strength there. Yeah, yeah. just the yeah. air. It yeah. just changes when she's in a scene. Yeah. Um, and, and the kiss between her and Nate at the end is is wonderful. The, mm-hmm. the, the Him blowing her the kiss is just lovely. Yeah. Oh, and Shul? Yeah. 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 I, yeah I, B.B. Newirth is a career that I want to say we left something on the table. Yeah, but uh, and we did maybe because we, we didn't did. make more movies where she would have you know just shown. 
Like yeah. she should have started Chicago. Hundred. We just we just didn't make more movies that would have been like right right you know in her wheelhouse, I guess. Because like she's obviously amazing in this, but like I mean, she could have chosen theater a little bit. I mean, she did a lot of television. I'm watching The Good Wife right now, and she's a recurring judge on the show. She was on. Yeah, she, I feel like she was she's in incredible, that but I, it's that too bad that like BB Newirth is playing you know period wives when like you know what I mean wives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yes, yes, yes. Um, as opposed to having her own movies that like uh, showcase all of her incredible talents, because she's one of the talented flight attendant recently was what I saw her in. Um, Oh, that's right. But again, you're absolutely right, Kenny. She's apparently in a pilot for something called Julia. I don't know. Oh, which is about the the Julia Child thing that they're doing at Amazon, I guess. Um, I, I love her. I wish she was in more stuff. I agree with you, Kenny. She should be I, I adore them. I've nothing. There are just people like that. There are just there are just stage actors like that, or Broadway actors like that, who are just so unbelievably talented, and yet, mm-hmm. you know, Hollywood, you know, generally has them playing, you know, uh, prosecutors in Law and Order because they're mm-hmm. New York based, and mm-hmm. no one wants to put in the work to try to see if we can actually get some kind of you know musical thing up yep. and running. So it's so so rare that someone breaks out in the way that like a Liza Minnelli was sure. able to forty sure. years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think she's. I mean. Maybe she'll be in the Frasier revival. Anyway, um, moving on. Uh, at this point in the film, um, basically Melvin, played by Orlando Jones, Nate on the side of his burlesque business is doing a numbers game. Um, Melvin bets big on a number that hits and they don't have the money to pay him back for it. So they essentially give him the business Um in the hopes that that will placate him, um, which is, uh, it, it's an interesting, it's interesting because then he basically runs the business into the ground, which pulls Nate back into the business, which is unfortunately then his undoing. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of, it's an interesting circuitous route to a place, I thought, from a story perspective. The and also, story. he works with Larry from Three's Company, so that's something. <laughs> yes, and and, and and yeah, <laughs> and Jones works for works with Jerry from Blackish, so it's you know correct, correct. Uh, Anthony uh, Anderson. Yeah, that little scene it, at the ticket counter. Yes, it's uh, great. Where he's trying to Anthony Anderson is trying to flip. Yeah. fantastic. Yeah. I also love movies like this where you get someone like an Anthony Anderson, and it's before he had his teeth fixed. It's like pre-dentist. Whenever you get yeah. a star, somebody who isn't quite at that level yet. Like Ben Affleck, for instance. Yeah. Like the well, first set of teeth. Yeah. The first it's funny. Anthony Anderson has 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 been a person who's been making money as an actor for about 30 years. Mm-hmm. So like he's been around yeah. for a really yeah. long time. And he was he was this guy. He was, you know, he was this overweight comic sidekick for a long time. And then it's kind of slowly. I mean, the shield had a big part to do with this, in my opinion, because he was so incredible in the shield. But uh, he's kind of slowly turned into this, you know, this leading the leading man in you know America's dad husband now. Uh, but I love that. I love that it was Anthony Anthony uh, Anderson. He was really cool in this film. He was. Um, they we get a we get a quick scene where I guess there's I mean I guess the, because of the time period which is around the Cuban Missile Crisis if I'm not mistaken we get a no, duck it's, and cover it's earlier 
It's it's before it, but there's this a ducking 50, cover scene. This was fifty four, but they, you know, from okay. from as soon from as soon as you dropped the bomb in Hiroshima, they they started doing this stuff because they knew that other places in the world were capable of creating an atomic bomb. I just I love so, the scene of Ben and Sylvia sitting in the hallway with textbooks oh, so on their heads, like that's gonna do a fucking thing. And they but, they yeah. come out and say that she's like, last year we had to lie down, you know, or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, just, yeah, but it's that's crazy. very. That that little to me, that's a Wonder Years moment, and I like that a lot. I loved it too. Um, but they, uh, Sylvia gives Ben two tickets to see James Brown. Um, One of so, the best, the best concerts, fake concerts I have ever seen totally in a movie. Totally. The crowd was out of fucking control. The other thing that was great was we haven't. Oh, this is Avalon, but. Uh, Elijah Wood, when Elijah Wood went to the movies in Avalon, yes, the way the, the, yes. the kid crowd flipped out about that serial, The Rocket Man. Like, like Barry Levinson got something here. Yeah. He got, he really, in this particular Liberty Heights, the way he portrayed that James Brown concert, that James Brown actor was so fucking awesome. And the energy in the hands yeah. up in the air, people moving up and down and, you know, Screaming up in front, but it would. This was an entire theater, people oh, just boy. like losing their shit in a religious service. Yep. And um, it was interesting because he intros one of his songs and he's like, I hope this is my first record. So these people probably haven't really heard him. No. Which is no, fascinating is- because they're like rabid fans. Yeah, or or they were yeah just taken with the performance. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's 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 really something to. It's funny. I, I was watching the Grammys last night, and uh, they did a whole piece on the Apollo Theater and and James Brown and the the guy who you know that that sort of that idea of that type of concert feels just so infectious. I just can't even imagine what it must have been like to be in that in that space. How good um, was Bruno Mars doing, Little Richard? It was great. My my daughter, who hates anything that was made before 2018, was up and dancing to it. It was wild. It's awesome. great. Yeah. Uh, so they go to the James Brown concert. Ben brings his friend along. Him and his friend are the only white people in the audience, essentially. And um, this is when Melvin sees the kids there, sees the car outside the venue, puts two and two together that the two white kids must be... So that that one of the kids must be related to Nate, so he kidnaps the kids along with Sylvia and her friend. Um, I'm not sure. I totally think this plan is great. <laughs> like I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced that this is the most thought through plan. Um, but perhaps that's the point. I I don't. I don't. I just this portion of the film. I wasn't really sure how to feel. I wasn't sure how to feel about Melvin pointing a gun at Ben and demanding that he touch Sylvia's breast. I, I all of it just felt very menacing. Yeah, me. menacing in 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 a at a time when this it just it felt out of out of character of this film. A hundred percent. That was my least favorite anything in the movie. That said, the scene where he is pointing the gun. Yeah. The moment between Ben and Sylvia and when yes. Ben refuses to refuses do to, it, yes. That's great. It was, was worth the mess yes. of the rest of it. Totally agree. Totally agree. It, it's in and, and perhaps that was, you know what I mean, a means to an end, which he sure. was like, I want this, so I'm gonna have to do this to get this. And mm-hmm. that's fine. 
but I, I, yes. And, and the kiss she gives him on the cheek and the, 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 the spine that Ben shows in that moment mm-hmm. refusing to, yeah, it's, it's a lovely moment. Yeah. It's, it's hard to square the little Melvin character with the rest of this film. It just yeah. is, yeah. you know, I, I, I think having your main villain be a black drug dealer, which is what he was. He was a drug dealer. Yep. We didn't see him deal drugs, but they said that he deal, dealt drugs. Um, is it? I don't mean this in like the the snarky way. It's a choice, right? It's a choice. You're telling a story about integration. You're telling a story about people who are, you know, essentially the underclass of a city. Like you will have people who deal with that. Joe Montaigne is running numbers. Joe Montaigne is running a burlesque club. You know, there are no angels among this group. Mm-hmm. Um, Little Melton's also being fucked over, right? Mm-hmm. He's also being fucked out of money that he won fair and square. So. His plan, while harebrained, is not a crazy escalation given what we have. Um, but it's played totally like w- without conviction, I guess what I would say. Um, I think it's a difficult needle to thread, and the thread was not, the needle was not threaded uh, <laughs> here. But. Uh, I, I I let it go. I, I would let it go. Like it did so much for Ben Foster's character. It did a lot for Joe Montaigne's character to me, putting his family in that situation. It's certainly not something that he planned on doing in his life. Um, it does kind of reduce Orlando Jones to an evil black villain, which is not the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of have to, you know, you kind of have to wrestle with that as you're as you're dealing with this movie and assessing this movie, but. Um, it was there. Were, there, there's definitely positive aspects that came out of this. I, I, I agree. I, I think that 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 the fact that it gives us the Ben Sylvia moment almost makes it worthwhile, um, or does make it worthwhile. Um, at this point, it was, we it ha- was awesome. That was shocking. Sorry, like that was sh- the the Ben moment with Sophie was awesome. Yeah. I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to undersell it. It's like yeah, no, no, yeah. The man had a kid, had a gun pointed at his head and was being forced to do something with a gun pointed to his head. I have never seen a character call the gunman's bluff in that situation. And he didn't even call it away. He was like, look, if you kill me, you're not going to have anything anyway. No, you're not going to do it. The entire way he played that was, I'd literally rather have you shoot me than, you know, violate. Mm -hmm. Like what a guy. Yeah. Mensch like, is the word you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> what a mensch! And the ball, the balls, the balls of Levinson to write that because that's a that's a hard scene to write and then to believe that you could find an actor who will accurately who it stick it. Yeah, yeah no, hundred percent. Stick that. Yes, a, a sixteen-year-old um, who could do that. So uh, at this point, Van gets word that Trey is in surgery after a car accident and Dubby asks him to go with her to the hospital. They go on a drive together um, to Virginia. Um, So (laughs) there's a moment in the car here where... where, um, You know know what a great little scene was? When when David Crumbles and uh, Adrian Brody go to Justin Chambers' house and, Ch- and Crumbles is just talking about how everything there is old and they can't afford new furniture. And, and it's know. a mansion with a butler. It's a mansion. Antiques I, everywhere. I, 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 yeah. Antiques everywhere, yes. And mm-hmm. he's like, oh, I mean, you, 
I my 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 tables for mica. You can't even <laughs> see anything on it. So you spill on this. And Doesn't thing. he also go by the name Yates? <laughs> well, name, to be fair, his name is Yussel. <laughs> so yes, so, he does change I mean, it to. He goes Yates. by Yates. Um, that was a big part of Avalon that they all changed their name. That was kind well, of a, that was a great that scene. No, yeah. Kirk and Kirk and K. Well, in Kurtzman, presumably, if Ben is talking about Sam Krachinsky being a relative. Yeah. Like, in my yeah. mind, th- that branch of the family just belongs to one of the other brothers. Yeah, which is totally possible. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. I um, so, so Dubby says something in this car scene uh, where they start, she, and, and it, they're talking about sex. She's talking about sex with Trey. And she says, I love sex, but Trey thinks I can get out of control. There's, there's definitely stuff about Dubby up until the motel scene, which feels like it's playing into a fantasy, obviously, of what sort of Van is hoping that this woman is going to be. And then obviously, when we get to the motel scene, um, where we, 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 the seeds are planted that she has a drinking problem earlier in the film, um, but it really comes to fruition at the motel, um, where... She, you know, gets very, very, very drunk. They make out a little bit. She gets very drunk, and and there's this sort of self-loathing, kind of weird, vicious cycle that you're assuming Dubby has has is stuck in. Um, and uh, she has a great line when she's throwing up in the toilet, and she turns to him and says something along the lines of "How much do you love me now?" or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like. Coming back to sort of what you were saying, Kenny, in terms of um, Levinson zigging when you think he's going to zag. Like this film is is doing things that you don't expect. You don't expect Dubby to to become, you know, for, for this motel scene with Van and Dubby. You're not expecting Ben and Sylvia to end up in the back of a car at gunpoint. Like these are unexpected turns for sure. Um, and also, quite frankly... Um, unexpected in the mosaic of this four yes. films. You know what I mean? Yes. Like this this movie stands out in that way, uh, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then Melvin gets arrested. He basically, I guess the impression is we get that he rats out Nate and his partner in the process. Is that that's what company. I deduced? Sorry, Larry from Larry from Three's Company. Um, and um, they're charged with prostitution and racketeering. Um, people believe, and obviously rightly so, that they're being overcharged because that they're because they're Jewish, um, and that uh, he's it looks like he's going to get eight years in prison. I think is what I what I gleaned. Whereas Melvin years, yeah. and Melvin's getting like six months or something like that. Eight to ten months, I think they said. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah they're making. They, they said they were making an example of the Jewish guy, which you know seems to seem to pan out and. Yeah. They said that they were getting him on prostitution, even though he was not, you yeah. know, fostering prostitution. But they, you know, they said anytime you bring someone over state lines and she engages in, or he or anyone mm-hmm. engages in any form of, you know, prostitution, you are liable. So that seems right. to be what happened. And the, it was the, a very brutal goodbye scene. We just before we before we wrap up, I just want to rewind very quickly just to the burlesque. Uh, club for a second because there's a there's a a, a new I've never dance. seen a club like that. <laughs> 
was, it, it looked, I mean, it looked great. It, uh, it, it looked like a Broadway theater, but mm-hmm. every, but, but except there was a burlesque shows, but not even burlesque shows. There was yeah. one. It was like it, vaudeville like, burlesque. Vaudeville with like a hot nurse. Budget <laughs> shit. Pressing playing to like playing to like twelve people, yeah. twelve creepy old men in this massive theater. It was yeah. if that pretty really depressing. Is, you wonder why they had really, money trouble. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he was running numbers on the side, you know, and then he yeah. was lying and saying that he was making more money on his burlesque show than he was. To um, uh, but they to they do have they bring in a a new girl who's costume isn't there and she has some sort of issues with wearing someone else's costume so she essentially not wears not not crazy uh and and decides to wear uh or is told to wear i guess it's like her work clothes is sort of the impression that i get like like a waitress outfit of some sort kind of I think it was just just her clothes it was just her clothes okay. yeah um it was and like she a cardigan on, and a blouse and a skirt she puts on a hell of a show <laughs> and the men love it. Um, and they turn the lights out on her when they're afraid that she's going to cross a line and expose too much of herself. I say all of this just to underline that there is no prostitution going on in this club. And that if anything, Nate was incredibly aware of where the line was uh, as to what he could or couldn't get away with. He enforced um, it. Yeah. He enforced it. So, And then you have a beautiful scene where uh, at the synagogue where, um, uh, Nate manages yeah. to uh, is able to well sorry before that we have the graduation scene which we talked about but then he we have um, a scene where uh, um, Adrian Brody meets with Trey at the diner because Trey has relatives that are involved in the justice system and he's able to find out the details as to what's going on and he's able to pull some strings so that he can go and look at the new Cadillac before he uh, before after Rosh Hashanah services after Rosh Hashanah services um, which is great. I mean, hey, listen, guys, it's uh, it, it's 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 a it's a very good movie. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's funny. I um, I I, I want to rate this, but I I I also need to say that I as I was watching it the other day, and this hasn't happened to me yet that I can remember, where like I feel like I've seen the movie but I only have fragments in my head and it's possible that this is because I maybe put it on in one of the video stores that I was working at. So like, it, it, I, I wouldn't feel right ranking this film in 99 is the point I'm trying to make because I, I don't really have a recollection of it that feels fully formed. Um, so uh, I, I will say that um, I, I came into this podcast not with the highest rating of this film. Um, and, and, I, and I wonder if it had to do with my affinity for maybe specifically Avalon, but for, for Diner and Avalon. Um, and that this film just is of a piece, but also isn't of a piece in its own weird way. For whatever reason, this film, I didn't have the best experience watching this film. I liked it fine. Would you give it, Phil? So I, I came into this podcast giving Stop it a teasing 60, us. Giving it a 65. Okay. Um, which I think is too harsh and you guys have done a much better job and I'm, I am much higher now than I was coming into it, but I just, high five, I, Kenny. <laughs> virtual high five. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think part of it was just for whatever reason, it just didn't all kind of gel for me in the way that I wanted it to. Um, but talking with you guys and sort of seeing the stuff that worked 
really did work a lot better than I was given credence to. So I'm at a 79 now. Um, I, I think that it's, wow, I, I, do think it's a, I do think it's a much better film than I, than I came into it thinking. Um, so that's where I'm at. What about you, Kenny? Uh, I am, I, I feel the same way you do, Phil, because I definitely feel like I've seen bits and pieces of this. There, there are things that came back to me, but uh, I don't remember having ever watched this anywhere near beginning to end. Um, I gave it an 83 before and said I liked this film a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to stick it at 83. I think it's, uh, it's, it's right there. I, think, I, I do think it is one of the better films of this year. Um, you know, not top 10, but like, you know, uh, pretty high up there. And I think you don't get, get any nominations. I've started thinking about actually keeping a running list of, of, <laughs> of potential yeah. nominees. Because of this movie, because I think there are support performances I don't want to forget in this movie. Correct. Uh, as we get closer to our 52 review, mm-hmm. um, I think all four of these films are maybe not Tin Man, though it's close, mm-hmm. are 80 plus. Um, I, I really did like Tin Man, but it's, it's pretty thin compared to the other three so uh yeah i think they're all really really wonderful films um all right around this area for me you know i think this is a always just a worthwhile watch i'm happy i did it up series that we did a mini mini series which was great yeah Uh, what about you toby Toby, hit it up so i didn't see it in 99 or since um i just watched it for this um Mm. so i have no previous ranking um, which maybe says something, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know, but um, I'm torn. Um, <laughs> I think that the ranking I have for this movie is heavily influenced by the fact that I chased uh, Avalon with it, and Avalon is my favorite out of these, and I have a very um, kind of heightened emotional tie to Avalon mm-hmm. more than... I think we said this before we even started, Phil, but um, it really affected me emotionally more than it ever has this time when I rewatched it. That said, um, some of the things that we've kind of pieced together together um, put this in a little bit of a different light for me in a good way. And I was actually going to say 83 as well, Kenny. Um, I think it's a solid movie. I think the, the right, it's the right number. The, <laughs> I think the um, performances are fantastic. And I think it's just a really interesting addition to the other three films. And when you look at them as a triceratops or whatever, what is it called? Quadriceratops. Mm-hmm. When you look at it um, as that... <laughs> It has its place, just like Tin Man has its place in there. They all kind of build off of each other in different ways. But I feel like, again, back to the family of it all, I feel like they're all cousins. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I'm, I was really excited to watch all four of these in sequence. I've never obviously done that before. I had never seen Tin Man before, quite frankly. Um, And uh, I was, it was, it was, Wonderful to see how they're all kind of connected to one another in a way that um, isn't overt. Um, I really did get chills when I saw that diner get lowered um, in the. It's and 
it's a tremendous moment because um, it, it really did make me feel like this is all of a piece in a way that's not hacky and shitty. It's it felt very organic. Everything really did feel like it grew off of itself. So, um, so in that respect, uh, I, I really loved it. Um, I do think the connective tissue is the Barry of it all. I yeah, think sure, that's the sure. piece of him in every film. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so next week, um, I'm curious if you've seen this film, Toby. Have you ever seen Tumbleweeds? Yes. Well, Kenny loved it. So, guys, buckle it's up. Tumbleweeds week. It's, it's Kenny's. Kenny. Yeah. Um, we have Emmy Potter on. Um, she's a, she's a journalist. She's the best. Um, I did guys, a Sex and the City episode with her. Guys, <laughs> if, you, if you like episodes where <laughs> Phil and I disagree, get excited for this one. If, <laughs> I mean, this is this is about as contentious as Phil and I ever get over the course of a uh, of a podcast. Have we? We've gotten more contentious than this, right? It I don't think matter. so. If we got this, if we got this contentious over tumbleweeds, what does that say about us? But uh, <laughs> we we can withstand anything. But we, what? But what? What else? Is, together what else forever. Is, what else has been like near this? Oh boy, I don't know. Nothing comes it, to, to mind off the top of my head. But listen, it's it is a contentious episode. Um spoiler, uh, we don't agree on this film. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Which, I didn't, all, I'm sorry, I just yeah. looked it up. I didn't realize it was Gavin O'Connor who directed it. Gavin O'Connor Neither did we before we saw it. And he stars in it too. Warrior, which is one of my yes. favorite films. Yeah. It's a Great movie film. that better is, than Tumbleweeds. I, it's a, I don't yeah okay actually yeah for sure um, but it's a movie that I feel like everybody should watch I think it is a perfect film and I'm kind of fascinated by that Tumbleweeds is not Warrior <laughs> and I also love uh, uh, The Way Back and I think oh, he's I like that too. super fucking talented and is pilot of the Americans and I love the pilot of the Americans but uh, but I think this is him figuring some shit out and yes. uh, figuring out a lot of things not to do moving forward. Yeah, it's listen, and we should I'm thank not, him I, for that if all the other good stuff came later. But I don't think that that's the public perception of this movie. I think the public perception of this movie is this was a good start, if not a great start. Was so, it kind of an indie darling? Yes, it was. It and Jada McTeer got a nomination for best actress uh, yes, for it as and well. People thought she was going to win. I mean, people like this is. It was, it, it had an interest. It had a weird narrative around it. It's also kind of a forgotten movie in a way too. Like, nominees for best actress in 1999. Um, two come to mind, obviously, very quickly. You know, which is mm-hmm. Hilary Swank and, and Annette Bening. Those that was sort of the two. Like, who's going to get it between them? And then maybe you'll remember <laughs> Meryl Streep for Music of the Heart. But I, you know, me, remembering. Anyway, yeah. So it's it's just it's just an interesting thing. Phil, can you name the fourth, the fifth? We haven't done her yet. Big actress. Who is it? Why am I drawing a big actress? A movie that we haven't even discussed doing. Are you kidding? Oscar winner. Four best actors. No, no, I mean we'll do it. We're gonna do it. But like, even when you and I talk about movies, like we'll just dump or whatever. We don't even talk about this one. I'm drawing a complete blank. All right, she's a big actress. She won. Uh, a best actress movie subsequent to this, and she is also in another uh, another 1999 movie that we also haven't done, but very much on purpose. Jacob the Liar. 
No. <laughs> Oh, very much on purpose. Because, wait, 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 wait. Very much on purpose because we're saving it. Oh, oh. so it's, it's not the other sister? No, no, no. <gasps> I mean, we're going to do them all, but like there are a few that we're definitely saving, and this is one. Why am I, why am I completely drawing a blank on this, Kenny? Can um, just tell you? Yeah, just tell me. Julianne Moore, Map of the World. Oh. Oh, really? <laughs> like, honestly, yeah. that I, didn't, I, I don't know why I, can't, I didn't even like put two and two together. That's fucking crazy. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Um, but uh, yeah, so I guess I'm wrong. The one that no one remembers <laughs> apparently is Julianne Moore in Map of the World, but Jenny Meteor is, uh, is right behind her there. Um, but yeah, so Tumbleweeds next week. Uh, we can, you listen to Kenny and I get into the Tumbleweeds together. Um, mm-hmm. And with Emmy. I got that. <laughs> and Emmy uh, em- 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 was a great referee. She was fantastic. Uh, yes. I, she, she was on a Sex and City episode. She's a genius she's and, and she's a... She's a gentle lady. She's a gentle lady who recognized that that somehow this was getting out of control. Yes. <laughs> so, guys, guys, what what are we what are we really arguing about here, guys? But but thank you, Toby. What are we arguing on. about when we argue about? Oh Toby? my gosh! Thank you, guys. Thank you, you so so much. You love uh, to have you on, Toby. It's one of my favorite things, and I appreciate you having me back um, as your. What did you call me? Senior Jewish correspondent. One last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonkatas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.